The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of this broadcast or podcast without the express written consent of Spaced Out Radio, Spaced Out Weekend, or Spaced Out Radio Limited is strictly prohibited. Listener discretion is advised. Are you experienced? From high atop the mountains of British Columbia to you, listening around the world, this is Spaced Out Radio with host Dave Scott. You can follow us on our website, spacedoutradio.com, on iTunes and tune in. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio, on Facebook at Spaced Out Radio Show, or on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Word is. Alright, alright, alright. Hey, mom, put down that one. Buckle up, space travelers. It's time to go for a ride on Spaced Out Radio. Mr. Bumblefoot, Dave is ready for liftoff. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six. Five, four, three, two, one. Captain, prepare for launch. Good evening and welcome to Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to have you along for the ride. 
as we are right here broadcasting live from this great planet we like to call Earth. We are live right here in Uncle Jimbo's cabin, right here in the great white north on this Thursday night, early Friday morning if you're on the East Coast. As we welcome in everyone listening in on spacedoutradio.com, on Spreaker, on the United Public Radio Network, Renegade Talk Radio, the High Plains Talk Radio Network, and on Revolution Radio. We do this thing every night of the week, rocking in and out of every show, thanks to our resident guitar god, Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal, formerly of Guns N' Roses, currently of Art of Anarchy. Bumblefoot, yes, the official music of SOR. Hey, you can follow me on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. On Instagram, I can be followed at Dave Scott SOR. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn, download this show and others on iTunes, and our website is spacedoutradio.com. If you want to take part in tonight's show, this is what I suggest you do, because we don't really take phone calls around here. You have to sign in to the chat rooms, either on Revolution Radio, on Spreaker, on the UPRN chat, or on Facebook at the SOR Space Travelers Club. Now, if you're on Twitter, a little bit different. Go to hashtag Spaced Out Radio. I will get to your questions in there as well. If you haven't signed up for the SOR Space Travelers Club yet, it's only 5 bucks a month, and with that, your name gets entered in a monthly prize draws. You get access to private group interviews, access to a special section on our website, and so much more. Hey, we're going to give you a heck of a lot more than just access to our archives. While on our website, you can read up on our latest blogs, check up on Eric Markham's SOR Spacewire for your latest and weird news, and if you've had an experience you just can't explain, do me a favor. Fill out an SOR Sightlines report. Our researcher, Mike Smith, is ready to find out what's going Going on all personal information is 100% confidential. We want to welcome in our newest affiliate as of this week, Renegade Talk Radio out of Las Vegas. Yes, we are live in Sin City. We are also live on 107.7 FM in New Orleans on the United Public Radio Network and over 160 countries around the world. And remember, if you are listening in on Revolution Radio, remember... The Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Do us a favor, visit freedomslips.com and donate today. Before I get to our intro and a guest, i got to tell you, I lost a bet tonight. The United States, which I know a lot of you are in, just defeated Team Canada in the shootout at the World Junior Hockey Championships, and I made a bet. I made a bet that I have to cheer for the New York Rangers for the remainder of the years. Thank you, Joseph effing equilino and i must play this i'm not used to this one this hurts i'm not gonna lie yes team usa beat my team canada tonight for the gold medal i'm a little a little sore over this so apparently I have to play the national anthem here tonight. Oh, it stings. It stings. I know, trying to be gracious in defeat. So we're going to let that play for a little bit while I get into our introduction. Go Rangers. I'm a diehard Rangers fan. Love that you beat my Canucks back in 1994 in the Stanley Cup final. I knew they could do it. Anyways, 50 years ago, The world had their eyes open to the world of Bigfoot after Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin released the most intriguing video probably ever in the world. Now, besides the JFK Zapruder film, 
There hasn't been a more scrutinized film in the world. And really, can you blame it? Go Team USA. They're the best. Anyways, continuing on. The Patterson-Gimlin film has been cut apart. It has been dissected. The people say it's a hoax. People say it's real. It's what took place in Bluff Creek, California, 1967. Their horses started going wild when they saw the creature. That's when they grabbed the camera, filmed Sasquatch, and the legend was finally on film. Now today, there are literally hundreds of groups across North America searching for this elusive monster, if that's what it is. Looking for the creature in California is researcher Kathy Strain. Strain's website is BigfootResearch.com. She holds a master's in anthropology and has written a book called Giants, Cannibals, and Monsters, Bigfoot in Native Culture. We talk all the time that we need a more scientific researcher when it comes to the creatures and legends like Bigfoot. And this is exactly what Kathy is. We're lucky to have her on tonight's show for the first two hours. Kathy is going to tell us how clear her opinion is on what exactly is lurking in the forests of North America. Kathy Strain, welcome to Space Out Radio. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm a little, I get a little bit of a cough, but I'm feeling much better than I felt earlier in the week. But thank you for having me. Well, you know, we're, we're crying up here in Canada right now. We are after, after that after that loss, but you know what? The other thing I have to admit, Kathy, on the air is I love gnomes. Gnomes scare the living crap out of me, but I, I love them now, and I have to admit that that's part of the bet too. You know, I, I I punished this young man, Joey, in the when Canada defeats the United States in almost anything because it rarely happens, but this time it's payback on our ice. But anyhow, let's get into some Bigfoot here because that's the reason why you're here. I'm excited to have you here because there aren't a lot of scientists who are actually truly doing the work you are doing in the field of crypto research, Bigfoot research, so on and so forth. What got you started in all of this, and why have you maintained the fact of researching this, maybe to the discredit of your fellow scientists and researchers as well? Well, when I was um, a little girl, um, my mom let me watch uh, Legend of Boggy Creek, and I was just mesmerized by uh, the the film. It's not a it's kind of a semi documentary, but we would call it today based on true events. And actually, there's the real people who were involved in it, but I think it has some glorified pieces. But it just um, struck me as being. Uh, just so mysterious that's what I wanted to do. And so when I was about fifth or sixth grade, somewhere in there, I asked my teacher what I would have to do to study Bigfoot, and she said, go into anthropology. And so there I headed down that path, and I never turned back. And my family were always uh, big travelers. Um, we always went to national parks and national forests and, and different things like that. And so history... Native Americans, all that stuff always was very intriguing to me. Anyway, so it was a natural fit. You know, and I, I figured it out that I couldn't make a living studying Bigfoot, but it didn't, it didn't change my passion that I, that this elusive creature was possibly an endangered species and, and didn't have much habitat. And, and so I just always kept my passion. And then 
I dove into the world that Native Americans had lots of traditional stories about Bigfoot and, of course, rock art and basketry and other stuff that had these symbols in it. And so it was just a really good fit. And so for me, why I continue is because it's truly a part of who I am. Um, It's, you know, my husband is a Bigfooter as well. He had a sighting in in the early 1970s. And uh, luckily for me, I had my, finally had my first sighting in 2012. And so it's just, you know, I've never felt defeated, never felt like I wanted to get out. Um, so it's just, you know, having a passion for something and, and really taking the time to study it and get to know it. And, you know, that's, that's why I'm still here. Did you always believe it was real? Did you always believe that there was something lurking in the forest? And what was your reaction when you first saw the Patterson-Gimlin film? Um, yeah, I always believed um, that they were real. My dad uh, was just short of finishing his degree in forestry before he ended up getting a different profession. And so we were always in the forest, and he would point out stuff that was weird or out of place and that kind of stuff. So, I, you know, he never said, I think Bigfoot did it, but he never said it wasn't either. So, I mean, it was always, um, I, I always believed. And... You know, I don't have a real uh, strong memory of the Patterson-Gimlin film. It was actually filmed uh, before I was born. And I remember the first time I saw it was on, um, I think, probably uh, that Leonard Nimoy series. And I remember being intrigued with it then. And what's very fortunate is Bob Gimlin, who is still alive, um, is a very good friend of ours. And so, um, you know, if there's any doubt in anybody's mind, all you have to do is talk to Bob Gimlin and you know that that is a real creature and, and that is exactly what they filmed. And um, and I have no doubt whatsoever. And for it to be 50 years old, this coming, I, yeah, this year, um, is an amazing testament to when you talk to Bob Gimlin, how sincere and truthful and how he can answer every question that you have. I mean, it's just across the boat, so... What convinced me that that film is 100% authentic was the fact that I don't think in 1967 that anybody who was trying to fake something like that would take the time to sew a pair of breasts on an outfit. No, and and they're perfectly natural. They move naturally. Um, There's also, if you have ever paid attention to Bill Munns, He's done extensive work um, on the film. And some of the stuff that he's caught, like um, that she makes a misstep and the jolt of her hitting the ground harder than she anticipated, you can see it rippling all the way through her leg. And you, you're not going to fake that in the costume. That's real skin and flesh underneath that hair. It's not a costume. Else you wouldn't be able to see that very intriguing natural movements that you see in the film. And so I, I encourage people to, to get his work and look at it. It's, it's profound. Why do you think there's been so many people trying to rip apart that film, Kathy, in regards to debating whether or not it's authentic? I, I think Bigfoot scares a lot of people. And the thought that potentially there is something in the forest that we as humans don't have control over or don't know more about it. I think that 
frightens people. I mean, in a lot of ways for Native Americans, Bigfoot served as the boogeyman. You know, you would tell your kids, don't go outside at night because this is what's going to happen. And I think a lot of skeptics, I guess I would say, um, still have that in themselves. And so they see Bigfoot as that, that one thing that just can't exist out there in the forest. And so, and it's one thing I've never really understood. If you don't believe in Bigfoot or don't think it's possible, feel free. This is in the United States of America. You have the right to believe whatever you want to believe. But why spend so much time talking about it? I don't believe in unicorns, and I so I don't dedicate any time arguing about unicorns. I don't believe in, you know, all these things I can tell you I don't believe in because I'm not interested and I don't want to waste my very precious, valuable time arguing with people who do. For, for what goal? For what goal? You know, I don't know any skeptic that's ever argued a believer into changing their mind, so I still have never found out why they do this, but, but I think it's just based on fear. I think it's just utter fear of what could be out there that we don't know about. So... You say you're family friends with Bob Gimlin, and you know that I can tell you right now, he is a very tough man. When you don't know how to get a hold of him, he's a very tough man to get a hold of. I've been trying for two years now, still can't find a good oh. connection. But on the flip side, you know, has he ever changed his story, or has he ever seen other Bigfoot since then? Um, I don't believe so. I know he's had other strange stuff happen. Um, but I don't think there was any other visual that I'm aware of, but I, I wouldn't necessarily remember that anyway, because we usually, when we're together, we talk about our families and my kids and, you know, what he's doing, what we're doing, that kind of thing. And so it's, it's you know, only in my conferences, and he'll talk about the, the day of the sighting that he'll talk about Bigfoot-related stuff, but most of the time we just talk about personal stuff. So, but I don't think so, but I could be very wrong about that. So with your studies, what you know with Mr. Gimlin and everything that you have seen, what convinces you 100% that Bigfoot is real? Well, I uh, I already had a very, like, very strong, because I have my best friend has saw Bigfoot, my husband has seen a book Bigfoot. But now I've had my own sighting in 2012, and it was absolutely, that's what it was. It was daylight, very close. So that seals the deal for me. I mean, I know that they're real. We know that they're out there. It's just a question now of how do we prove it scientifically so that the species is recognized um, by the government because the U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service has to recognize it as a species and we get protection started because I don't know if you're as familiar with a lot of the the weather issues that we have down here, but where California is in a drought, we've been having catastrophic uh, wildfires um, and throughout the rest of the United States we're losing habitat on a regular basis just due to, you know, change timber needs, you know, that kind of stuff that's going on. And at some point, you get below a breeding uh, level where you can't maintain new babies coming in with uh, old ones dying, and so then that species dies out. And so and I think that would be the 
I don't even know. I mean, it would be the worst thing that could possibly happen uh, to the world, to that species, to our environment. And, and that's what I'm trying to do is provide that scientific leadership so that we get better evidence so that we can prove that it's real and we can move on to the next step. So I'll put you on the spot. What do you think Sasquatch is? Well, um, based on just um, the enormous, well, we don't actually, well, that's not true. We used to be foot here in California, but we had a catastrophic wildfire that, that totally wiped out um, the location where we did our Bigfooting. And so um, it's starting to get better now. But um, So most of our work that we do is in, located in Oklahoma. And based on uh, weeks' worth, weeks and weeks' worth of research, there's nothing about them that makes me conclude they're anything more than an ape. They don't make tools. They don't use fire. They don't have what we would call human traits. And so it's obvious, though, based on some other characteristics, like walking upright, that they're likely somehow related to humans, but in a distant way, and that, to me, only can be an ape. What kind of ape? We don't know. We don't have, we have only just very little uh, previous uh, primate fossils in North America so far that have been located, so we don't know what it's, you know, we don't know if it was always here, and we certainly don't know if it walked across the Bering Land Bridge when Native Americans came into North America. Uh, we don't know its origin, but, you know, that we'll figure out after we prove the real. So you don't buy any of the theories out there that Bigfoot has some sort of interdimensional or shape-shifting power that a lot of First Nations, American Indians, indigenous people believe? Uh, well, actually, no, I don't believe that, but also most Native Americans don't believe that either. And so that's always a misinterpretation of what their stories mean. And so I always like to correct that. So they don't have, although in their stories Bigfoot talks, that's about the only human characteristic he has. He doesn't have any alien-type characteristics. Well, I, I don't believe it's alien, but I know... No, it's not alien at all. But that's, not, that's what I don't want to misrepresent. Native Americans don't say there's any interdimensional being to that at all. All animals in Native American culture live, have a physical being on Earth, and then they have a spiritual version of them. That doesn't mean that they come in and out of a door or that they're interdimensional. It's just it's the two sides of everything on Earth. There's always a physical and there's always a spiritual. So that's it's not quite the correct um, interpretation to say that Native Americans believe that they're interdimensional. So it's just a correction. <laughs> I can see that in regards to it. And the reason why I ask is because there are people who have had some sort of cloaking experience around it. Do you believe that it has any ability to cloak? No. No. I don't think it has any ability that any other animal on Earth doesn't already have. I think when somebody... And I've only ever talked to a few people when they try to describe the cloaking to me, and every time they do, it just always comes across as you just couldn't see them anymore, 
And so I always ask the question, how is it that you don't know that it just didn't blend in with the landscape? How do you know it just didn't slip behind a tree or something? I mean, I've walked up on tons of animals in the forest because that's my job that I didn't see until I was right up on them because they are naturally made to camouflage in the environment that they're in. And so I think it's a misinterpretation of what it is that they're seeing. I mean, I know that there's a few out there that literally say, you know, that there's orbs and, you know, it goes further than that. But just the few that I have talked to think the explanation is just that it it was camouflaged by its environment and your eyes couldn't any longer pick it out of the environment. I'll tell you why I bring that up. I have seen Bigfoot. In September of 2013, I was on a friend's property in the backwoods of where he lived, and he lived in a rural area, and we were in the forest behind his 10-acre farm, and that's where we saw two of them. There was always a lot of spiritual activity around their yard, too. And one day we were doing a perimeter walk, kind of trying to see what what was happening ghost-wise because there was always some ghosts walking around their property. And two of the four of us felt like we were being followed. And we, when we look back, and this is at dusk, okay, where you can still see at night. And when we look back at the old cherry tree right behind his house, there was pixelation that was standing beside the tree about 8 to 10 feet. And we, we looked at it. It was very intriguing. And only two of the four of us could actually see it, which was strange. But when we turned to continue to walk to the front of the house, which was maybe 15 seconds, that's when we heard the roar come from behind the house, right near where that pixelation was. And I share that with you, not not to just disagree that there is something there, but I'm just not sure, out of all the people I've talked to, that we can just narrow it down to an ape. Well, I'm a scientist, and unless there's evidence given to me to suggest otherwise, there's nothing else on this earth that has that quality. So why would Bigfoot be the only animal that would have that quality? What what benefit is it to us? What is the benefit to the ecosystem? That I have no idea. But then comes the, the argument from the people who maybe don't believe the scientific part is, well, where's the body? If this exists, where's the body? Why haven't we found one? Well, I think there's always good explanations for that. I mean, if anybody has ever been in a forest and seen how quickly a forest will take a a dead deer, a dead bear, and reduce it down to nothingness, I mean, why would Bigfoot be anything different? I mean, every animal in the forest that's layered with with ants and all kinds of stuff going up the, the, the ladder, they consume those things as their food. And so I, I wouldn't surprise me, and I also wouldn't be surprised if people haven't seen um, a body out there and just didn't know what it is. I mean, I used to do quite a bit of um, human or bone identification for our local uh, sheriff's department, and I would get stuff like obvious steak bones. And you're like, why would somebody think that this was a human and needed to call in a cop? It's because they're not educated. They didn't know that it wasn't a human bone. And so I think that's very common that people in the force may have seen something didn't know it wasn't a bear or didn't know it wasn't this or didn't know it wasn't that, and so they passed it by. So I think 
you know, it's, it's, they, they're right in demanding a body because that's what science requires. I don't think that lack of a body is lack of its existence. I think it's just a matter of time before it, this becomes, now that it's so widespread with um, television shows like Finding Bigfoot, and now it's, you know, uh, jerky commercials, it's much more mainstream commercialized. I think the chance of people recognizing something for what it is is more likely now than it's been in the last 50 years where, you know, my husband uh, came from Texas. He never even knew what a Bigfoot was, you know, never even heard the term used until he came to California and had his own experiences. So that's, that's what you're up against. Media now is helping us spread the word, and I think our chances are greater having that random find, the random car hitting something uh, happen and people turning it in and recognizing it for what it is. Why do you think, then, so many scientists, if there's enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, at least in a courtroom, if we were using the same evidence in a murder trial, somebody could get convicted about it. But when it comes to Bigfoot, mainstream science, for the most part, does not want to touch this. Why do you think that is? Well, I think because um, it has always existed in the realm of, like, cryptozoology, like Loch Ness, like, you know, many of those creatures that um, their hands are already busy studying what they are studying already, and there just isn't the interest in um, broadening out from that. If I'm sure if a body did turn up, every scientist on Earth would go, oh, I want to see it, I want to study it, you know, because that would be, you know, a valid thing to study. But And, and I just think it's just part of the stigma, too. It's just like, you know, in the old days, somebody always snickered at the religious studies teacher because, you know, why would anybody get a degree in that? You know, it's just that that I'm better than you are because, I study this and you're doing that and, you know, it's just human beings being stupid human beings. But but I think hopefully that'll, that the new generation of people um, will produce some scientists that I think are more interested in at least posing the question and putting some very serious research behind it. Are you surprised that with all the evidence, whether it's scat, whether it's hair samples, I know there's teeth samples out there, okay, are you surprised that more people with this type of evidence, more scientific in the scientific community, aren't at least taking the time to learn about this? Because in my opinion, and trust me, it is extremely humble when it comes to scientific education. That's why I went into journalism instead. But science to me is about researching evidence. And if we have this evidence and we have people who are refusing to even study it, does that not go against what science is all about? Correct. So science is about asking a question, testing that question through a hypothesis, and then continuing to try to falsify what your hypothesis is. That's what science is. And science is often wrong, and they correct themselves, and um, that's how we do things. And so um, I think in a lot of ways it has improved over the last couple of years, I have now met 
I don't know if I want to say closeted scientist, but um, I have met quite a few more people who are indeed scientists that when approached, they have been very open to looking at the evidence and being involved without any without any fear of being stigmatized. And there's a lot more that were around many years ago that I think are coming back into having the time now that either they've retired or have the time now to come back into it. And so I've seen quite um, a few lately. And so I think that it might be improving. You're never going to get somebody at Yale to ever even consider looking at something, but you might at some colleges that they don't, you know, that that they don't mock as much. And so I I, I think it's getting better personally. But, yes, that is the duty of science, to to question evidence and study it and answer or potentially try to answer their hypothesis. Do you think, then, that there are too many weekend warriors going out there claiming to do scientific research when really they're just studying their own personal interest or opinion? Oh, there's way too many of those, and they're causing um, a large amount of problems. I mean, they're just people who YouTube every single thing they do is just awful um, work. You know, there's a, a gentleman that films all these Bigfoot structures that he swears are out there, and if anybody knew anything, they're Aspens. Aspens are the most shallow-rooted tree of any tree that we have, and it doesn't take a whole lot for an aspen to go down. And so when you see a lot of aspens down, there was probably a wind event or some other event that can logically explain why so many trees are down. But yet he films, this is obviously a Bigfoot-created thing, and you're like, based on what? What what leads you to conclude that this tree that's, that's now leaning over has anything to do with the, what do you see here that's modified? And then you, you'll film the inside of it, and it's got glass and cans and stuff. Clearly there was a human around here, so what? And his theory has been that if it uses, gathers that stuff in the forest and throws them in there to throw people off. Why? I mean, what would what makes you conclude that? And so it's that kind of stuff that I find very destructive to um, the community because it makes everybody out there um, who has anything to say have, especially like on Facebook, have an avenue to get some of this stuff out there when it's just rubbish. And it's just, they just, these people don't even have enough experience um, in the woods to tell you what even the tree species are. So if you don't even know what species of trees or grasses or any of that stuff that's out there, how in the world can you make any conclusion of what Bix is doing in the environment when you yourself don't know that environment? And so, you know, if, if I could change one thing, I would love to change that. But I, I, don't, I, I see that getting worse over time than it getting any better because now YouTube, I guess, pays people to put those videos up and, you know, it's a, it's a onslaught of a problem. So... I, and that doesn't mean I don't think that, that people can be citizen scientists or go out there and do good work. They should, and they should be doing stuff scientifically, but they should be not drawing con- conclusions that are not based on the evidence. 
And so that's what I don't want people to do, but I definitely want people to use scientific methods and to get outside and get the experience of what your forest offers you and what is normal animal behavior and normal animal sounds and normal smells, all that stuff that goes with it. Do you think television plays a role in what is happening on social media? There's a lot of researchers who believe that the television shows out there are really causing all this type of action that is happening in the forest where everything and their dog just happens to be a Bigfoot, you know, wandering around. Do you think that the media could be at fault for some of these weekend warriors? I think it's 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 both a double-edged sword, good and bad, because, um, like I said, I think it does get awareness out there for people to know that this is potentially, you know, out there. Please look while you're out there. But then it also makes people feel like um, they're capable of doing anything without even having some basic knowledge. And so uh, hopefully nobody has been injured or killed or anything like that, gotten lost by, by just haphazardly wandering outside. But it is it is a little disheartening because there are people like on, like in some Facebook groups that I'm in, I, I, I can tell you I know 10 people in there that I know have been doing this a long time. And some of what I'll call the newbies, you'll make a comment about John Green or, um, you know, some other very well-known that Renee DeHinden, and they'll go, who? And you're like, you don't know who John Green is, there's a serious problem if you're in here claiming to be a Bigfoot expert or claiming to be a researcher and you don't know the history of of those who came before you. You know, what books have you read? Well, I don't own any Bigfoot books. Okay, so what is it? What are you basing anything you're doing on? On finding Bigfoot? So... You know, that's the kind of stuff that, that, that is very alarming to me, that you shouldn't be calling yourself a Bigfoot researcher or even a, a, a Bigfoot noob if you don't know how we got from uh, the, the, the 1957 Jerry Crew find of the big feet near his equipment up there in Willow Creek, Creek that coined the term to through... Uh, the Patterson-Gimlin film, through everything else we've gone through until today, you should know your history and know what mistakes have already been done, what do we already know, that kind of stuff, or else you're really just shooting blind at the subject. I was surprised that many people in the Bigfoot community haven't even heard of John Bindernagel. And this guy is like the Muhammad Ali of Bigfoot research up here in Canada. You know, yeah. and I was blown away. I mean, here he is, 83 years old, still running around the forest like a child trying to find this damn creature. And, you know, there's researchers out there, like you said, who don't even know who a gentleman like him is. When I talked to John in 2015, and I was blown away because I was looking for him as he was looking for me because he wanted, he had heard I had had a Bigfoot close encounter and he wanted to hear about it you know and you know here's me with stars in my eyes that mr Bindernagel wanted to actually chat with me about it but i asked him something and i'm curious to get your opinion i asked him what he thought of the word squatch the term squatch and he took a deep breath and he was very disappointed 
that, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the, the Sasquatch community would, you know, take it and crunch the name down and come up with silly terms. And to him, it almost seemed like all that research, the 70 years of research, almost flushed down the tube by one term that was made popular on television. Do you think that it has kind of gone that way like John has, or do you think it's just a term that people can use? Um, no, I guess I, I don't really put much thought in it just because, you know, that's kind of stuff I just, you know, I only have so many brain cells I can dedicate to, you know, a day. And that. You know, Native Americans, the word Sasquatch itself isn't even a Native American word. It's a anglized word. Um, I think they're from British Columbia because they can't really, it's hard yes. for us to say what the world is. Um, and so why would anybody be insulted by shortening a word that isn't Native American? If it was a Native American word and we were treating it disrespectfully, then I think that would cause me to be upset, but it's a it's a white word that was coined by Burns, you know, back in the 30s or whenever it was coined, and so it doesn't bother me, but I, I can see his point that it's, again, it's back to that history of, you don't even know how we got here from here, and you're, you're already treating it like it's a joke, and then it's not a joke. It's a very serious thing that those of us who consider ourselves real researchers take very seriously. And we'd like to see, not only for us to be treated with respect, but for the concept of Bigfoot, what it is that we're doing shown respect to. And I, and I could see where he would feel that was showing a lack of respect. What do you think the government's role is in this? And I'm not trying to get conspiratorial here at all. But there's a lot of people who believe that government officials know Sasquatch exists, but are refusing to label it because of the money that would go into, now you've got to build protective lands, you've got to spend money on research, you have to create areas of st- sustainability if there's a population, so on and so forth. And the reason why I bring that up, our researcher around Space Out Radio Land here, Mike Schmidt, he's an avid hunter. And... One day he was out hunting for Sasquatch prints near where we have found them. And I'm in the central part of British Columbia. And he comes across a conservation officer whom he has talked to many, many a times. And so they start talking and the conservation officer says to Mike, what are you doing out here? You're not usually in this area. He goes, I'm actually looking for footprints. And he says, what kind? And Mike says, Bigfoot, expecting the conservation officer to laugh. Well, the officer didn't. And long story short, in the conversation over the next 30 minutes that Mike had, the conservation officer says, look, I can't tell you whether or not it's real or not. I could lose my job telling you what I really think. But I can tell you this. I've seen strange things in the forest, things I cannot explain, and that's as far as I can go. But if any reports come in, I will pass them over to you quietly if you keep my name quiet. So if the government doesn't know what they are, doesn't know they exist, why are they, would they be telling their officers to be mum on the subject? Well, um, I work for the United States Forest Service. I've been uh, a federal employee for 26 years, and I have never been told that I can't talk about it, not use my title, 
not be free to give radio interviews or, or talk at conferences. And I don't know of any person, because there are other of us in the feds that have been told that either. And so I think um, it might be that what, if, I assume a conservation officer that is like our state level versus a federal level? or All conservation field? officers are Canadian. They're federal employees. Okay, so, and it might be just that it's, you know, you don't want to encourage people to be doing stuff out in the forest that they shouldn't be doing because people do a lot of stupid stuff in the forest, if you know what I mean. So, but even our employees, they take Bigfoot sightings when somebody in the campground or who's out hiking has something weird happen and they report it. They take right down that information and they pass it on to me. You can even, we even have them submitted through our website uh, for the Stanislaus National Forest. And so, um, I don't particularly know. There's definitely more paranoid people maybe than not on occasion. I mean, so I couldn't answer that question. But I guess the 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 argument that I would say about at least the United States government is we can't keep anything a secret. We're horrible at trying to keep anything quiet. You know, believe me, it gets out. No matter, even if you just make a joke, Sometimes in a meeting where there's four people, somehow, some way, somebody finds out about it. And it's just like amazing uh, how it happens. But um, as far as like global warming or climate change, if, say, the Obama administration was aware that Bigfoot existed and they had the proof that they could do it, you don't think they would have played that card by now in order to stop all harvesting of trees on all federal land across the United States? I think he would have. If he strongly believes in, in the climate change as much as he says he does, that is the biggest ticket you got. And so I don't believe for one second that our government has a widespread belief or knowledge of a Bigfoot. There may be individuals, of course, but it's not at any kind of level that would suggest they're hiding anything. So... I almost wish they did, just because we could just be done and over with it. But yeah, I I've lost hope of that by now. So before we get to our audience questions, we got about ten minutes before we got to go to break here. I would love to hear your 2012 sighting story. Sure, I'll give you the the abbreviated version, and uh, and it has one of those you know seeing something you didn't see kind of things in it. But uh, basically, we're in Oklahoma. We're with five other researchers. It's still daylight. A rock hits a uh, cabin roof. And this place is just as dense a forest you can possibly even imagine. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, and everything's trying to kill you, including the vegetation. And so um, they go over. The, the, the first three guys go over to look at it. They call for my husband to come over. And I'm standing there by myself. And I'm just kind of watching, you know, the environment. When I turn back around, it looks like something had been looking at me from inside of a bush and quietly let the the branch go. And then, I mean, not just like bouncing, just quietly went up. And so I kept my eyes on it. And when they came back, I told them, just stick your head in there and see if you see anything. And they never even really made it to the bush before they said, oh, now there's clearly nothing in it because you'd be able to see a dark figure standing there. And so um, 
another rocket thrown and onto a, a roof, and they run over there, and I made my husband stay. And I said, you know, that I can't imagine if there was something in there that had easily got away. Would you look again, please? And so he goes, sure. So he sticks his head in the bush, and he gets daylight, but it's shadowy, you know, because it's a good-sized bush, and it's uh, on the edge of this hillside about, uh, you know, a very steep hillside. And he looks for a few minutes, and he turns around, and he looks to me, and he says, oh, honey, there's nothing in there but a couple of logs. And I went, oh, okay, fine, you know. So we sit down, and we're looking up I, where I'm sitting, this place they call it the bottleneck. And it's about the only clear area that there is. It looks like it maybe in the old days it had been an old driveway, uh, an unpaved driveway that just kind of went to, they let go back to weeds and stuff. And so, But it's, you know, you can walk through it pretty easily without being harmed. And we start hearing this weird noise, like something's walking and, and somebody said, well, maybe it's that fox. And, and I'm looking right at it. And... All of a sudden, there there are two individuals, a big one and a little one, uh, very dark hair, but it was short hair, looked exactly like the the creature from the Patterson-Gimlin film, is walking right at us. And it looked like initially that uh, the big one was trying to get the little one to go with it up the hill and out of the way, but the little one looked determined that it was trying to get closer to where we were. But we clearly were not aware that we had come back and had sat down and were looking right at them. So I jumped up, and I said, there they are, and I ran at them. And, of course, that startled them. So uh, of the five researchers, four of us saw the same thing. The other guy didn't know what we were talking about because of his angle. He couldn't see down the bottleneck. So I'm running at them, and then they decide, oh, we're busted. And they jam at this hillside that is quite steep, like nothing I've ever seen before. It was like they were on a bungee cord, and somebody had just let it go. And they just went up that as quietly, as quickly, as unbelievably as anything I have ever seen in my entire life. I mean, it was unbelievably fast. And so, um, so long story short... There was other things that happened the rest of that day and that that particular trip, but we stayed up as long as we could. We didn't have much happen, I don't think, after that, as I remember, but um, we went to bed, and then the next morning when I got up, my husband and other researchers were sitting outside, and I said, and I could just tell something was wrong, and I said, "Uh, all right, what's up? And Brian Brown, who was one of the guys that was with us, says, uh, what did Bob tell you yesterday when he stuck his head in that bush? And I said, oh, honey, there's just a couple of logs. And he goes, guess how many logs are there now? So, and it's better when my husband tells him, because he, he actually contemplated stepping on those logs to get through the bush and getting over on the other side. Oh. And it looked... Yeah, oh, I'm glad he didn't. I'm glad he didn't. I mean, obviously, we were very blessed that day because God knows what would have happened had they popped up at that moment. And, you know, I don't want to know. But, um, and after he thought about it, it looked like some a bigger log pinning down a smaller log. And so, anyway, so that that's a good example of there obviously was something there. I think they were always in that bush. They thought we had left and they were trying to... I think, get closer, I can't swear to that, but in my husband's mind, even though we were there to Bigfoot, 
in his mind, when he looked in that bush, he saw logs because that's what his head is programmed to see. I, you know, I, you know, when we see Bigfoot, we see Patty, you know, going across the the sand and out of range. You know, that's what we're used to. And so, for that a context for us, we we by our own human mind have to put it into context. And so, you know, it doesn't mean we don't see strange things. You know, like your pixelation. What could that have been? I mean. I don't know. I mean, there's, there could be all kinds of logical explanations for that, or it may be what you really think it is, but it, it's, it's hard to tell, you know, without evidence to, to back that up. And so it always wishes we had a camera uh, looking right down the area which they came from, but I'm the one who triggered it with my bottom when I ran by. <laughs> and so we didn't get any film of it at all, so except for me. Um, jump around like an idiot. So, but I deleted that. So there's no evidence of that anymore, anyway. So, and I'm sure you didn't mean to startle the creature. Yeah, just your, oh, exci- I don't know your, what your, I your excitement. I mean, I can see where you would. I can picture it in my head, Kathy. You're probably just so in awe. Like there it is, you know. And what else do you do? You you want to get that up close and personal. Like when I had my encounter. I was 100 feet away from one right in front of me playing the peering game behind a tree. And then if that one was at noon, the next one, which was at about 1, 1.30, you know, same thing. The moving branches, this second one walks right through where those branches are moving. And that one was at about 85 feet. When you're that close to something, you want to get closer. You want to feel it. You want to touch it. You want to explore. So I under, totally understand why you did what you did. Yeah, and and I don't think it would have been much. I think once they saw us, they were going to bolt anyway. So I don't think me running at them changed the outcome of what was going to happen. But yeah, I never really thought it that way. I, you know, I don't know if I thought they would stop and let me, you know, shake their hand or. You know, take some hair. I, I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. I was just like, finally, oh, my God, there they are. I'm going to go to them. And then, you know, obviously they react just like any other animal would. Like, oh, God, there's a crazy lady running at me. And they bolt, you know. Every animal does that. So uh, I like to feel, though, that they feel bad about that and wish they had stayed. But I don't have any evidence of that. <laughs> was that a, is that a hotbed of... Oh, yeah, it's a hotbed, yeah. Yeah, and I guess for you being a scientist, seeing the youngster with the mother, that had to be some sort of happiness in sight because that means they're breeding. Well, I mean, I I can't tell you the gender of either animal. I didn't notice any breath, so I don't know that that was a mother or an older sister or somebody who's going to be in a lot of trouble later after they find out they got caught. But um, And I really didn't pay as much attention to the small one because I knew that I only had so much time. I could only absorb so much information. So I concentrated on the big one. And so that's the one I watched go up the hill um, at that speed and then just caught the little one at the end of it, but not enough to, to know how it moved. But the big one was nothing but sheer muscle just size, like you just can't even comprehend how powerful it is. And they went up that hillside like it was nothing. Like it, like 
it didn't make any difference if there was a rock in their way or if there was a tree in their way. They just went out over it. And it was in that kind of, you know, of course, they're adapted to those environments, and so they would do better than humans do in that environment, but it was still very surprising, and it was very graceful. And, I, and I've seen my share of uh, bears and uh, mountain lions and all kinds of other animals in my, in my years, and um, I've never seen anything move that fast or that at, at ease and gracefulness um, in that environment. It was, it was pretty amazing. How often do you go back to that site? Well, since we were there in 2012, we've gone back every year. So, um, and we, the next next following year, I went for three weeks by myself without my husband, and my husband went for three weeks without me just so we could extend it as long as we possibly could. And we have young children and, you know, dogs and houses and stuff that we needed to do, somebody here responsible to take care of. And uh, then on average after that, we've gone for two weeks um, every summer. And in 2013, I ended up seeing baby one in the trees. And then in 2014, then I saw a gigantic gray one that was just huge. But I didn't get as much detail of that one because there was trees blocking my full view. But... So it's been very successful, and I've had all kinds of other experiences with, you know, the they are rock throwers back there, and um, but not not yellers. They don't make a lot of vocalizations like I feel like they do here in California. But they're they're definitely rock throwers, and uh, I've seen that funky uh, red eye shine stuff as well. And I have no explanation for that um, at all. But it's very obvious with with behind you know that there's an animal behind that high shine so it's been a it's been a wonderful place to have the opportunity to, to go to and on that note we're going to hop out for our first break of the night Bigfoot researcher Kathy Strain is our guest. Bigfootresearch.com is her website. She'll be back with us for one more hour we're going to get to your questions right after this on Spaced Out Radio Would you like to become one of our space travelers? All you have to do is click on the space travelers icon at spacedoutradio.com. For only $5 a month, you can get access to some great prizes, as well as private monthly shows, newsletters, and a members-only section on our website. Become a space traveler today. Looking for news beyond the mainstream news? Head to spacedoutradio.com and check out the SOR Spacewire. This is Spaced Out Radio's Eric Markham, news director for the SOR Spacewire. Daily, I will bring you intriguing stories and outlandish reports from what's going on around the world. UFO sightings, paranormal activity, conspiracies, alternative health, and so much more. And if you have news, email me at news at spaceoutradio.com. Have you had an experience you can't explain? Had a run-in with ghosts, maybe Bigfoot, or seen lights in the sky? Hi, I'm Mike Schmidt from the SOR Sightlines. I'm here to investigate your sighting. Head to spacedoutradio.com and fill out a report on the sight lines. All your information is 100% confidential, and I will help you figure out what you've been seeing. File your report, and let's find out the answers together. 
Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit. And expect a miracle. Greetings, space travelers. I am Dave Cruz, host of Beyond the Strange Radio, live every Sunday evening, 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 10 p.m. Eastern. Each week, we have special guests and talk about paranormal, bizarre, and strange topics mainstream just won't touch. Look for us on the Spaced Out Radio website or go to beyondthestrange.com for more information. And remember, don't be a stranger, just be strange. Hasta. Are you interested in advertising on Spaced Out Radio? Head to our website at spacedoutradio.com and click on our advertising tab. There, you will find an assortment of ways you can get your product out there with us. From radio commercials to banners and social media. Have a product you like our hosts to endorse? We can do that too. Visit spacedoutradio.com for more details. Hi there. This is your medium, Joanna, from Spaced Out Weekend, Two Mediums and a Large. I would love it if you would come and join us with host James Tyson every other Sunday on Spaced Out Weekend. Together, we will take your calls and your questions live. Our goal is to provide you with a positive outlook on deep questions that you may have. Questions regarding love, relationships, money, or whatever else is on your mind. Come and check us out at spacedoutradio.com. The sounds of wood knocking in the forest. Odd happenings right out of a fictional world. These are the reports I love. Hi there, this is author Ronald Murphy. And I would love it if you join me and Spaced Out Radio host Dave Scott the second Wednesday of every month on our journey into the unknown land of cryptozoology at spacedoutradio.com. From Mothman to Frogman and everything in between. Hey, they don't call me the crypto guru for nothing. From British Columbia to Northern California, Pacific North Weird has Cascadia covered. Check out our feature videos at spacedoutradio.com where I... Vincent Zunza and my super sleuth partner Alexandra Sullivan track down the weird and strange stories from around the Pacific Northwest, from Bigfoot to Mel's Hole and everything in between. This is what makes life exciting. So why report the normal when we can report the Pacific North Weird? Right here at spacedoutradio.com. Oh, there's only one way to rock loud and proud. In high definition, Radio 702 Rocks, Las Vegas. Every Saturday and Sunday night, as Dave Scott wanders aimlessly in the wilderness, you can come hang out with me, James Tyson, and Spaced Out Weekend. Starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, I'll take you along as we talk with some of the best experts in their fields. Spacedoutradio.com is the place to find us. So sit down, relax, put your feet up, enjoy the topics like the paranormal, supernatural, intuitiveness, and so much more. 
Hope to see you there. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio, Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Would you like to connect with us? Head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info. And hit us up on Twitter using the hashtag SpacedOutRadio. Now, back to Dave Scott and SOR. Welcome back to the second hour of Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to have you along for the ride. Tomorrow night on the show, it's the first Monday of 20... Make that Friday of 2017, which means our Keith Andrews will be back. Yes, the ET Connection. Tomorrow night, our Keith Andrews. And we want to give a couple of shout-outs. One of our team members, KJ, is going in for surgery tomorrow. We want to send some prayers and love out to her. And you know Samantha Mowat. We may have to make a change on Tuesday night. Samantha's uh, needing some love and some prayers right now from our Spaced Out Radio family. Her father passed this evening, so I'm not sure if Samantha will be with us on Tuesday night. We'll be able to figure that one out as we go. I will let you know ASAP whether or not she will be able to attend on her Tuesday night show, The ET Experience. Anyways, Friday night, tomorrow night, our Keith Andrews, 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time at spacedoutradio.com. We want to welcome in Renegade Talk Radio out of Las Vegas. They are our newest syndicated radio station broadcasting Spaced Out Radio Live. Thank you for being with us. And if you're listening in on the United Public Radio Network live on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 160 countries around the world, good to have you along for the Spaced Out Radio ride as well. If you're listening in on Revolution Radio, remember the the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Ginandromorphism. Ginandromorphism is your password. So if you're a space traveler, make sure you use the password wisely. If you want to follow me on social media, you can do so on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Remember to use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio if you want to check in with a question or a comment. I got you live right on my screen in front of me. You can follow me on Facebook, Spaced Out Radio Show. Give our page a like. On Instagram, Dave Scott SOR. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download this show and others on iTunes. And our website is spacedoutradio.com. While there, we have a plethora of features for you, including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club. It is only five bucks a month. We have one hour left with Bigfoot researcher Kathy Strain. Her website, bigfootresearch.com. She has her master's in anthropology. This is one smart lady when it comes to. Sasquatch Research. We're lucky to have her tonight. Kathy, welcome back, and thank you so much for doing this for our audience. Oh, well, you're more than welcome. This is very enjoyable. Before we get to the questions from our audience, and they are piling up, and I promise I will get to them, do you believe that Sasquatch is a docile creature that just wants to be left alone, or do you think in certain parts, in certain areas, it is a more volatile creature, much like the First Nations say they are? Well, you know, that's a hard question uh, to answer because Native Americans do believe um, 
that there is a darker side um, to Bigfoot, and they would always teach their children that Bigfoot has his area, and we have our area. You don't invade his space, and he won't invade our space. But, you know, basically just stay away from them, um, um, always implying that there could be some harm given. And, of course, they have lots of stories where they went to war um, with either individual Bigfoots or I wouldn't know if I'd use the word tribe of Bigfoots, but a group of Bigfoots and had to exterminate them because they wouldn't stop killing their children. And so um, it definitely gives you a different side of it, but um, I don't know that I would believe that any animal in particular, if cornered or put in a bad situation, um, would, wouldn't fight back. I mean, that's, I mean, I've seen deer, you know, beat up hunters, you know, before because they felt like they were in a bad situation. Any animal's gonna react out of, out of self-preservation. Um, but I don't know enough, um, in the sense of if they prefer to be left alone or if curiosity isn't a part of what they're interested in because, you know, we, we we often want to give animals like on Disney, you know, human characteristics because it makes them more loving and sweet if we think our, our you know, Bambi is, is can talk and do little funny things when we know, you know, they don't do that. And I think a lot of people will tend to do that to Bigfoot where they, you know, this whole forest friend, um, they speak to me in my mind stuff, you know, I think that's where that comes from is the need to anthropomorphize um, Bigfoot, but it, it's, a, I think, a fine line between wanting maybe to be left alone and being curious that I don't have enough uh, stuff to tell you now to either go one way or the other. I think inherently any animal would rather be left alone to raise their young, freely get water, freely get resources that they need. But then again, maybe watching a human for a little bit is a little more interesting to in your otherwise dull day. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But I definitely would never approach a Bigfoot, except for me when I ran at them, um, uh, as if it's not, doesn't have the potential to do me harm just because I've always been in the forest. I've always encounter other animals and I never you never put yourself in a situation where you can be physically harmed. So so I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if they're they're meaner in Oklahoma because they're stuck in Oklahoma and they're really nice and passive in California because we got all this great, you know, sunshine and, and vegetables and fruit. I, I there's not enough for me to tell you uh, an answer to that. Let's get to our questions right now. Miss Diz in the Space Out Radio chat room on Spreaker is asking, have you ever watched the Timber Giant Bigfoot's YouTube videos? If so, what do you think? Or do you stay right away from anything on YouTube? No, I, I do watch stuff on YouTube. I am familiar, oh, but I haven't seen it in a while, so I don't know that I can remember exactly what those were about. So I, I remember I wasn't impressed enough with it that I ever went back. So I know, I know that much. So that's, that's all I can really remember of it because there's just a few that I actually check on once in a while to see what they're still doing. But um, So that that's all I can really say about that. I just don't, 
I never went back, so I must have not been too enthusiastic about it. Darren is asking, why do you believe that Sasquatch is so elusive? Well, I don't think there's a lot of them. And so, I mean, I know for a fact that um, there are probably thousands of bears uh, in my national forest. But I've only really ever been successful. I mean, I've seen, I've, I see, I've been here, I've been here in this forest 18 years, and I bet I haven't seen eight uh, in all my time. And, and I even know where to go because we have a, a game reserve, and usually we'll see something in there. But if there's thousands of them, I should, people should be having a regular sighting of there. We have archaeologists, because in the summer we bring on temporary help, who have been here for years with us and still haven't seen a bear that are, you know, kind of getting grouchy about it. But, um, but when you have a smaller population of them and they know how to blend with their landscape, I think that's what makes them so elusive, so that um, they're not hanging around, um, you know, at the 7-Eleven going through the dumpster looking for food, like you might see a bear um, that are deeper into the more forested areas that are honestly difficult for a lot of us to get to. But, you know, but they are in more rural areas around homes as well as there's good habitat. So there's not many of them. That's, That's part of the problem. John has a question here. He is asking, Kathy, if any Neanderthals were still alive today, would you refer to them as animals or something more akin to human? Well, Neanderthals are closely related to us, so they're humans. They are. Um, they have the designation of Homo sapiens. Uh, I'm not going to try to say Neanderthalus. I'm really bad at that. Uh, but we're Homo sapiens sapiens. So they're already designated to be in the Homo sapien line. Bob is asking... Kathy, do you think that Bigfoot reveals himself or herself to certain people? Why do some go out in the woods and never see the creature? Well, I think sometimes it's just luck. Uh, it's timing. And, um, yeah, maybe that they find something about your particular odor, your voice. Like, I can't help, you know, you've obviously noticed that I can have a high voice. I'm clearly a female. And I can't help but wonder if maybe that was an influence on uh, what I experienced in 2012 because there's hardly ever any women in there. And it might have been unusual to hear such a uh, high-pitched voice, plus I'm kind of short, so I might have looked like a child or something, you know, something a little more interesting. So, I mean, I can't swear to that. But but I also know that when I was uh, a younger archaeologist and working in a different area of California, even though I was into Bigfoot, I was not aware necessarily of what everybody attributed to Bigfoot. This was long before the Internet where you had any kind of information like that, and I just basically had John Green's books at that time. And I know then, had I known then what I know now, I probably had other experiences then, but I didn't know what it was at the time because I thought it was something strange and weird and went on my merry old way. You know, I didn't recognize it as a potential Bigfoot experience because I wasn't uh, educated. And so I don't know necessarily that it is um, 
unnecessarily all that uncommon. I don't, I don't mean to portray it as being uh, common, but I think there are times where there is an interaction of some sort, whether it just be you're being watched or you walk past a footprint or you heard a funny sound that you can't identify, but just that you just don't associate it with a Bigfoot experience. It's just something you can't explain and you, that, that's all it means to you. You just keep going on your merry way. Follow-up so, follow question from Bob. He is asking, Kathy, have you ever heard about those stories and what do you think of them, if you have, about people who are following Bigfoot footprints and they just seem to disappear? Oh, yeah. I, I, I myself have had an experience with that where uh, my husband and I were um, uh, had been working with this witness and she happened to be gone and a lot of snow had fallen and so we just, on a whim decided to go up to her house and see what's been going on since she's been gone. And so we found a set of footprints in the snow that came from the mountains, came from the woods, went to the side of her house, seemingly disappeared, and we were, like, perplexed. What, did it go in the house, you know, kind of thing? But it took a lot of research for us to get on our hands and knees in the snow and realize, because you think snow is the best transfer of footprints, right? You can't really get all that, that any better. And instead, the animal had turned in its own footprints and walked in the exact same position back basically from where it came from. And so had we not looked and carefully found the toes also on the other side, it would have appeared to us that um, that the animal just disappeared or did something strange that we can't explain. And so I think a lot of times, and I've heard those stories many times, and when you look at the photographs that they'll we're following and then how they start to peter out. I, I think those are just a, a, a basis on the rock material or the soil material that that animal's walking in and maybe getting up on rocks and moving away. I think it's, it's um, uh, entirely plausible that, that it was still going. You just, you just lost track of it. I never would have thought that. Never. Let's get to John Porter's question at hashtag Spaced Out Radio on Twitter. Are Bigfoot found only on large continents, or are they found on any of the larger islands as well? Well, the, the term Bigfoot is really only used to describe um, a large, upright, hairy creature in North America, including Canada, British Columbia. So... Bigfoot-like creatures, um, they definitely, um, I, after the, my book is about North America, Native Americans, and I've since extended my research into South America, uh, Mexico, Central America, and all the way down, and they have completely different names for the same exact description of, the, of this animal. And, of course, you have um, Orang Pendek, which is supposed to be orangutan-sized, that is from the Indonesia area. So there are stories pretty much from every continent except Greenland um, that have some version of this, be it smaller, be it, uh, um, I think the largest version is ours. But, you know, the Yeti, the Bombal Snowman, there's many, many names uh, for what they're called on in, in different areas. But, um, yeah, the, the, the Rain Pen Deck is probably 
the one we're actually the closest to identifying at this point because um, uh, there's a lot of people over there doing research, and so um, they're regularly finding footprints, and, you know, I think that's going to get answered quicker than, than anything else at this point. Gail is asking, keeping in mind Bigfoot lives in areas that experience four seasons, what do you think, Kathy, Bigfoot eats and lives on? Well, um, I think that they eat the same stuff that Native Americans eat in their environment. I mean, just uh, here in our area, we have uh, what we call Indian potatoes. It's a brodacea uh, species, and it's full of, of protein and carbs, and, and it's easy to get to. We have wild onion. We, you've got tons of little animals like squirrels and rats and all kinds of stuff. You don't have to be some massively great hunter to, to get protein. There's, of course, fish. Um, there's all kinds of stuff, and I would suspect that uh, they spend most of their time foraging for food and putting on a pretty good layer of fat for the winter, um, and I also think it depends on the area. So, like, here in California, I actually believe they come down out of the, the snowy mountains and go into areas um, that uh, aren't as snow-covered. And I know everybody probably thinks every inch of California is built on, but it's truly not. We have my my forest is over a million acres of of trees and beautiful country that has nothing built on it at all. So there's plenty of habitat to come down low. Uh, and live, and I think in other areas, I think it's the depending on the location, uh, the four seasons may not be as pronounced as they are uh, probably over here on the west coast where we go through regular seasons. And I think it might be, I don't know. I see. I actually have. I know snow is always asked. The question is always about snow. How do you survive in snow? But a lot of times, if you guys have ever spent any time in Oklahoma or Texas, I can't believe they survive the heat. So. In my mind, it's just like, how, what a miserable place to be a Bigfoot in because you're just sweating all the time. But I know they've adapted. So, yeah, and that's the other thing you have to realize is uh, all these animals are adapted to their environment. And so whatever benefit that they had from either being really big, it, it's, it's enhanced their ability to live in these areas in extreme weather conditions. And that leads to a follow-up from Gail. Do you believe Bigfoot shelters, maybe hibernates in the winter months? No, I don't believe that they hibernate. Um, there's probably going to be uh, this past, all right, I'm forgetting my years now, in August 2015, we had, we used these uh, uh, thread trip wires, I guess is the best word. It's a trap where you put a, a, a string across what looks to be a trail at seven foot high and you wait for it to get broken and see which direction the animal's moving in. And we had put a radio tag that was buried in a burr that the, the, the radio tag was into. When the line's broken, it removes the magnet and that uh, radio tag starts emitting. We had one deployed in August of 2015, and we were able to track it. I, I, I can't man, know the exact date at this point, but I'll, let's say July 2016, where we were regularly tracking it. We are never able to catch up with it. Nobody ever had a visual of what broke it, but we were speculating on the animals that we know travel through that area that would break something at seven foot high, 
and it moved the entire time. It has a huge radius of about 30 square miles and all the way through winter. And so uh, that paper is going to be coming out uh, here soon, and uh, it will probably be on the Relic Hominid Inquiry that's ran by uh, Jeff Meldrum. And so do I think they seek shelter? Oh, yeah, I think any animal takes advantage of a rock shelter or, you know, gets out of the rain when you can get out of the rain. But I don't believe that they hibernate um, uh, at all. That, And I think if what we tagged was a Bigfoot, I think that's very good proof that they do not. Let's get to Lori's question. She is saying, why do many scientists not consider that there are things out there that we do not have the ability to scientifically prove right now? Because man, meaning humans, are the most arrogant species on Earth. We think we know everything. There isn't anything for us to know. And that's part of how we maintain our ability to function is because if I can tell you how every situation is going to go, how every, you know, if you're going 80 miles an hour and you slam on your brakes, you're going to hydroplane in the rain. You know, that's, that stuff is always drilled into us, right? That this is the, the cause, the effect, and then the outcome. And so for the ability for a large mammal, even though we continue to find large mammals throughout the world all the time every year, it can't happen here because, by God, we know everything that lives here. And so it's just plain arrogance on, on science's part that there is no large question left to answer in regards to the animal kingdom. And uh, there's going to be a big, huge, rude awakening when it happens, but, um, you know, it, does that make them not be arrogant the next time? No. I think science in general is an arrogant discipline just based on, you know, how it's framed. You know, there's no other way for it to come out. And so it's unfortunate, but it doesn't, all it does is by having fewer scientists out there, that's why in a lot of ways having community folks um, who are educated in Bigfoot knowledge and know what is out there in the environment is beneficial because in the absence of science, then the citizen can become the scientist using good methods. And so we're fine with that for right now. Spear is asking, have you ever checked out Lloyd Pye's analysis that the Neanderthal skeletons matched Bigfoots? Um, did you say Lloyd Pye? Yes. Um, I don't know that I was aware that he had looked at that. I mean, I, I would find that almost unbelievably uh, because Neanderthals are short and very, very stout. There, there are no examples of a Neanderthal that breaks six foot. And so I wouldn't be able to... What, why would someone consider Neanderthals being this, uh, a candidate, not to mention... Neanderthals never made it past Europe, so how did they get into over here to North America? And so uh, a Neanderthal is a better choice for the uh, Almasti that is sometimes still seen in uh, Russia. Now, that's a much smaller species there. It does 
seem to have some characteristics that might match it with with a potential relic Neanderthal that made it through the song, which I wouldn't doubt at all. I don't believe species always, always die out at the exact same moment science says, oh, the last one of this was 30,000 years ago. Well, there's always something that survives, as we know uh, from history. And so, um, in my mind, that's the better candidate, not, not Bigfoot here in North America. All the way from Australia, Steve is asking, and he lives in the future because they're like 17 hours ahead. Oh. Steve is asking, every body rots away, there, even, and when it does, there is still hair left behind. Have you ever heard of any cases where anyone has ever found hair with bones? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, you know, we had two big DNA studies that were uh, recently concluded. One was Melba Ketchum, which I don't put any value in whatsoever. And then you had the Sykes study, which um, our group had a hair in that uh, study. And I found uh, it came back as human, which I completely disagree with because we looked at it underneath a microscope before it was submitted was not human, had no human characteristics to it. Um, and I found Dr. Sykes to be completely unprofessional. He never acknowledged that he uh, received the hair. He never uh, told us what the results are. He listed it incorrectly uh, in his uh, monograph. And so it was just like, so I don't have a lot of faith that when sometimes these big-name professors say they're doing studies if they don't let their own biases come in and they dismiss things out of hand without really doing a, a true study on it. But um, but I have never heard of bone and hair ever being found together that was suspected to be Bigfoot uh, at all. Darren is asking what you believe or what your thoughts are on researcher Jeffrey Meldrum. Um, yeah, he's, uh, I know him very well, and um, his main interest is in uh, foot morphology of the Bigfoot, and so um, I know he goes in the field, uh, but um, I, I don't think he's as field-going necessarily as uh, many of us. So, But yeah, if you have an interest in speaking with him, and um, he's a very good resource for uh, if you have questions or if you do have evidence like hair, he is always willing to look at that and tell you if it's common animal or, or maybe potentially something else. So he's more than willing to be that mediator uh, if you think you have some sort of evidence and him helping you get it to the right person. We're going to keep firing away because the questions are there. Joe is asking, is it possible, Kathy, that the older, more experienced Bigfoot bring the younger, inexperienced Bigfoot into areas of human habitation so that the young Bigfoot can learn about the hairless apes? Uh, and that's very possible. Um, when I was in 2013 and I saw the small uh, baby Bigfoot in the tree, and it was just doing its thing, you know, jumping through the tree. Um, you know, I kept thinking to myself, why would a mother allow her child to risk being seen by its hairless apes going through the trees? You know, and so I, at first I thought, well, that's unbelievable. I would think that every species values their young as much as we do. You know, we produce them, we want to keep them alive until they can at least, you know, pay us back a little bit. 
And then I kept thinking, well, maybe she is here. And if I made a move towards that baby, what would happen? You know, I, nothing did happen. Nothing came at us. I mean, I, of course, ran to that tree as well just to get a better look. Um, but nothing stepped out or tried to frighten me. But um, I, I think that's very possible. You teach your young by showing them what it is that you don't do. And so I, I think that's very possible. Our resident scientist in these parts, Eric Markham, who will be on in hour number three with me, he is asking, in all the times you've talked to First Nations people, have they ever put Sasquatch in that trickster role, much like they do with the little people? Um, not commonly. Usually that's Coyote. Coyote always plays the trickster. He's a big pain in the butt. And not normally. So uh, the the... Most of the time, his role tends to be who keeps uh, the the children from doing dumb stuff. You know, like don't do that. This is gonna ha- he's gonna come get you and take you away, and then you'll never see us again. And so um, sometimes he's a creator, and uh, seems to be um, uh, has always been here as well. I mean, he they don't view him as anything being here recently at all, and which is always intriguing as well that he's held at the same level as Eagle, Condor, you know, all the, the greats that are in the stories and uh, and with Coyote as well. And so very revered and, and just commonplace um, animal that they saw probably, not probably not regularly, but enough so that they they wrote down his history, or not didn't write it down, told their history rather. Follow-up question from Eric. Have you ever seen or studied the petroglyphs that seem to depict Bigfoot? Um, the Harry Man pictographs, I'm assuming yes. you mean. Yeah, I, I'm considered the leading expert uh, in those pictographs. And so, yes, I have studied them extensively. Uh, worked with the tribal elders. We um, was able and allowed and blessed to write down uh, their traditional stories and their traditional beliefs, and um, it was a, a good part of my my life and uh, very pleasant memories. It's really where I was taught how you speak with Native Americans. You know how uh, how you ask questions, how you uh, ask permissions, how you ask for X, Y, and Z, and and so it was a it was a great time in my life. But yeah, it's there there unique in the sense of that they're the only pictographs we're aware of, which is painted on a rock. A petroglyph is hammered um, and removes rock uh, in order to create that picture. And it depicts a, a male, a female, and a baby. And the male is literally eight and a half foot tall. So, I mean, that's pretty amazing within itself because usually uh, rock paintings are not true to size, but many the mother's true to size, the baby's true to size, and then the famous coyote, eater of the moon, is full size on the roof as well. So those obviously meant a lot to them. Do you believe Sasquatch is migratory? Um, not in the sense of what I think is meant by the term of, like, um, uh, deer herds, you know, that go vast distances. I think they move for sure. I think they have a large territory that they occupy and probably, 
you know, own, I guess, I don't know if I would use that word, but where they get their resources from because I'm sure they need a lot of calories. But I don't think it's migratory in the sense of, of you know, like the birds that go all the way down to Mexico and then come back to California, you know, on a summer and winter basis. I don't think it's like that. They would have a hard time nowadays getting across our highways to True enough. get too far. We're going to need those Sasquatch bridges going over top or underneath. Bob is is asking, there's a lot of speculation of what happened in the Russian Dyatlov Pass incident. Do you believe Bigfoot killed these hikers? Um, I don't believe that. I mean, just the appearance of those photographs that they show are actual photographs um, of the bodies that were recovered. They look like they died of frostbite and um, you know, I don't know, teenagers out hiking in the winter, gee, I don't, nothing good for goes bad with that. So, um, I don't necessarily believe that, but I, I don't know, um, I mean, I, I guess there's always a possibility you can't rule anything out because they didn't get to the bodies, um, in time to see if there was any kind of, uh, other damage that could explain their death. But, uh, right now I'm leaning towards knowing, having teenagers, and knowing how bad it would go if they went outside in the winter and what the actual outcome would be. So I lean towards the the least uh, controversial. Let's get to John's question. This is a follow-up to his earlier about the Neanderthal. And he asks, should you really be referring to Bigfoot in terms of being an animal when it has so often exhibited high intelligence? Reference your own story about the backtracking over its own footprints. After all, we don't have enough data to judge its brain size even. It it doesn't matter what your brain size is. It's got nothing to do with it. We are all animals. So just like humans and all apes are primates, we're all related to each other one way or the other. So it's not dismissive of of something by calling it an animal. It is because we all are. And brain size and intelligence isn't what makes something, if the argument is between being human and being an ape, brain size is not whatever is going to determine if Bigfoot is human or not. And we aren't just bipedal. We're not just our brain size. We have culture. We have technology, fire, tools. Those are the characteristics that make you human. And if you're not human, you know, calling something an animal is not an insult. And, yes, I do think that they're very clever. I think my dog is extremely clever. She can somehow manage to climb up on a table, get the cat food, and put it on the floor without breaking the bowl. I don't know how she does it. One of these days I'm going to have to get a camera and tape it because I'm just so startled every time it happens. She's extremely intelligent. Um, Does that make her calling her an animal insulting? No, that's just your biology. Your biology is your biology. You can't change that. So, But I do feel like they are extremely intelligent, yes. Let's get to... Another question here from Darren. He is asking, do you think Bigfoot are smart enough to stay away from cameras and guns? Well, we think that cameras, uh, yes, I do think they're smart enough to stay away from cameras because um, we we haven't quite finished the study, but my husband would have to speak more about it because we 
did use an array of all kinds of different um, cameras. And almost in every one of them, like when you had a deer, the deer was always looking at the camera when it went off. So there's something about a camera that you can either smell it, you can maybe slightly hear it, something to that effect that I think is uh, not just only because it's also out of place that you would notice it and try to avoid it. But, um, yeah, I think that that's a very likelihood that there's something about a camera that tips off its, its presence. As for guns... I, there's no reason to suspect that. I, I had a gun on my hip uh, in 2012 when they were coming right at us. I, I don't think it made any difference. Uh, do they know my intent? Um, I, I don't know how they would ever know my intent since, you know, uh, we don't speak the same language and I definitely don't behave in a, like, a threatening manner or anything to that extent. And, and I know very well that there's been many hunters many, many hunters that have had sightings, and they're probably uh, the biggest category of people who have had sightings. And, of course, they're armed with the intent of shooting whatever animal uh, they have a, a, a license for. So I don't know. I've always wondered in those instances if, because um, there is a really good Native American story that I have about that, that, um, a Native American here in our local tribe had shot a deer, was walking back with the deer, and a Bigfoot essentially blocked his way and demanded, you know, blocking his way to get the deer. And he just ended up, you know, giving him the deer and kind of going, I guess I'm not going to get out of here if I don't. He goes back and he talks to his tribal elder, and the elder goes, oh, yeah, we forgot to tell you, we owe that Bigfoot a deer every year. So it was your turn to pay, so thanks for doing that. And so I always wonder if they associate guns with the ability to get a free meal. You know, what if you shot a deer, it runs, Bigfoot outruns you to go get that wounded deer, and they're, that dinner, too bad on you. So I don't know. But but hunters are definitely the the most frequent category um, that have Bigfoot sightings. Up here, it's fish for First Nations people. They leave fish in, you know, just on the on the beach, so that way Bigfoot can come in and it stays away from the children and the women and the men. Mm-hmm. So it, there yeah. is donation sites like that. Darren's follow-up question to you is, what part of the USA has the most action with Sasquatch, in your opinion? Um, it's probably the Pacific Northwest, um, including uh, British Columbia and um, Washington, Oregon, and California. I think um, there's more sightings here than any other place, but I think there are hotbeds in other locations, and we seem to think that it's all related to rainfall, that the areas that have the greatest rainfall, except for Hawaii, because they don't have anything over there, um, tend to have the greatest amount of sightings. And so the area that we, Bigfoot in Oklahoma, has the greatest amount of rainfall in the south. Um, Of course, the Olympic Peninsula has a ton of rain there in Washington, and it just has tons of sightings coming out of it. And so, and I think that may just be related that it provides lots and quick um, vegetative growth. Um, A lot of that vegetation is edible, and, and it's a you know, a, a, a very handy resource to have for an, 
someone to eat. And so I think that's there's a correlation there, but we need more uh, data before we can make a strong correlation to that. Joyce is asking, wouldn't Bigfoot shelters be more comfortable in caves where the temperature could be around, say, 50 degrees Fahrenheit? Well, it would depend on, you know, caves don't uh, aren't everywhere. They have to have a certain uh, geology in order for that to happen. And uh, California here where we are, um, the few caves that we are aware of are humans, you know, made, a, made them into tourist attractions. And we're not aware of any. I also, as part of my job, I'm the manager of caves, and I don't manage anything that isn't, you know, isn't popular to the public. And so, um, so caves, since they're not everywhere, they might be a uh, option in the areas where they exist. I mean, we've always been told in this area that we live in, uh, that we do our Bigfoot research in Oklahoma has a cave, but nobody's ever been able to find it or verify it. And I'm not particularly sure that the geology is conducive to a cave. But, um, I mean, that's always been the rumor, but, you know, we don't know. So, I mean, I, I, I would think that if a cave was an opportunity, that, yes, indeed, someone would use it because it does provide very good shelter. It allows you to hide. It is warmer, um, but other little critters like, you know, snakes and uh, wood rats and all kinds of other stuff also like to occupy that same space, but maybe that's a food resource for you as well. I just don't see snakes as being very mm-hmm. much of a delicacy. It's just not on my menu. Yeah, Gail, they can go free to eat any as they want. Mm-hmm. Gail would like to know, what do you think about researchers using gifting sites? Um, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, I think that. Um, uh, I mean, I, I guess I would have to ask what kind of gift. I wouldn't be giving putting out anything that could be hazardous to any wild animal at all. You know, like trinkets that can be swallowed, or or you know something that gets stuck in another animal's fur or anything like that. But as far as food, then I would behoove people to use only native food that's found in that location. So if you're, you know, you don't give a a gifting site of avocados from Mexico because no animal there is going to know what that is, and it's probably not a wise idea if a Bigfoot happens to come along and find that, that we're not introducing a food to their um bodies that they, A, could be allergic to, could have a bad reaction to, that kind of thing. So I would, if people want to put out food, I would recommend only using the native fruit uh, or vegetables that's found in that local location. Edie Kaito, who has been on this show a couple of times, she's from Indiana and she has a gifting site. She has actually started bringing out basketballs and soccer balls. And when the big male comes around, he actually will squeeze the ball until it pops. Yeah. And she's got some beautiful handprints stored in her house of, of on these wrecked balls that they seem to know and love. It's very interesting. Yeah, she should send those to get fingerprinted with, with powders so that you can get a fingerprint. 
That would be very good. You might even be able to get DNA off of that. That would be kind of cool. Eric is yeah, asking. Eric is asking, as we continue with the questions here, do you think, Kathy, that the proximity to the West Coast has anything to do with the species having crossed the Bering Land Bridge when humans migrated across? Well, I think that just like humans, when we came across or the Native Americans came across the land bridge, I think they spread everywhere as quickly as possible because you, you were in a new environment with a lot of new resources and potential. I mean, they obviously didn't walk all the way down to, you know, the tip of uh, Argentina the second they got here, it took time to work it down. But um, I think it's very possible that we, the state of California also had the largest population of Native Americans during contact because it's very easy to live here. Uh, and as is the coast, I mean, salmon, you could gather enough salmon and dry it that you would have to work like two weeks a year to have your food for the entire year. I know of no other place that offers, you know, that kind of resource. Um, we have lots of native berries. We have lots of um, natural tubers that would be a good starch. I mean, it's it really is an amazing place where you don't need agriculture or anything like that in order to survive. So I think it's as humans, uh, Native Americans love this coast, I think it's got a good environment for Bigfoots to live in as well. Let's get to Miss Diz's question. Getting back to the Lloyd Pye theories, do, do you think, what do you think of Lloyd Pye's theory about the origin of Bigfoot? Uh, is that the star child? Oh, I... That's mostly what I know about him. I, I think he thinks they're they're from outer space. I think. Is that correct? Yeah. Even I'm yeah. far I'm far out there, but even I'm not buying that one. Yeah, that that's just you know. First of all, if there are aliens and what they left us with Bigfoot, that's really disappointing. <laughs> yeah. So that's all we got. Thanks a lot. So, no, I don't put in any stock in that um, at all. There's mm-hmm. there's nothing to indicate that at all. So, Joe is asking, Kathy, were you part of the all-female television Bigfoot research group? Yes. What was that experience like? Um, fun, yet a little um, annoying at the same time. The cameraman wasn't allowed to stay up. Uh, and film with us past, I think, 10 o'clock. And we had a lot of stuff happen there. Uh, had rocks thrown at us. We had some really strange, weird sounds. And none of it got captured on film because he was asleep. And so that was very frustrating to me. Um, but it was a lot of fun. I, I know um, all those ladies fairly well. And it was... Uh, a good experience in that area that was up at Skookum Meadows. Um, what a beautiful area. I mean, it's stunning how, how beautiful it is. Um, unfortunately, because of the Skookum cast and all the attention that's uh, been focused on that area, it's kind of been ruined. They haven't had Bigfoot activity uh, there in many years because so many researchers are there. And so that's the kind of unfortunate, if you want to talk about the, the good and bad about television is that those uh, programs have the ability to send so many people 
to a location where it makes it no longer habitable for a Bigfoot because there's researchers literally everywhere. Um, that, that's extremely unfortunate. We shouldn't be doing anything in our power because that's what science does to change uh, habitat or the behavior of the animal we're trying to study. That completely defeats the purpose of what science is for. And so um, that is a, one of the big bummers. There's several areas that um, have been ruined, one in my area in particular, uh, because of that. Have you noticed patterns in regards to the research areas? Like if you go back to an area, say, a month, two months, a year down the road, that the patterns of the Bigfoot don't change? Um, yeah, I would actually say that's very true. I think they're definitely creatures of habit. Uh, for example, we know that uh, one of the animals like to travel from the mountain down to the creek uh, in a certain pathway. And their landowner, for whatever reason, put a metal structure in the, that very pathway. You know, he didn't do it on purpose. It was just, you know, where he put it. And that poor thing has just been battered to heck with, with rock throws because it is annoying, obviously, to somebody to have to go around it. You know, they can't go in their straight line anymore. They just got to do a little boop, and then, then they can get right back on the path. But it's annoying enough that they don't appreciate it. And I think that they are creatures of habit that they routinely, you know, once you can figure out how they rotate through the day, and that was one of the things I was trying to figure out is when do they come off the mountain? When Because we were between them and any water source. Which way will they go to get to the water? And then how do they get back up to where we thought they lived on the mountain? And so um, it, it seemed to make sense at the time, but it, it, we just didn't have enough data to support it. But they would seem to work in a counterclockwise fashion. And... You know, fairly early in the morning, coming down, sweeping through the area, and then by, you know, evening, they were right back where, uh, at home. And so, um, and I think they like it that way. That's a routine. They know they can count on the water being there at a certain time. And, you know, so I think that's what you would expect of, of anything, really, is to stick to a pattern, stick to certain behaviors so that you're not surprised um, by the situation changing. For people who are wanting to go out and research, example, like myself, what would you recommend us looking for as rookies? Because I'll tell you, we have gone out a couple of times, three times as a matter of fact, my little group that I have here, and we've already found two footprints. What would... What would you recommend as a new person stepping out into the wilderness do from start to finish if they want to become researchers of Sasquatch? Well, the first thing that you want to do is you want to pick a general area. You want to then get, you know, Audubon makes these fabulous uh, guides that tell you the common animals, the common food resources, common plants, and really study those and get to know them. I would go online. 
uh, our website. Well, it's actually not my personal website. It's the Alliance of Independent Bigfoot Researchers uh, that I'm on the board of directors. Has some excellent tools for you listening to common animal sounds, uh, common animals making unusual sounds. <clears throat> excuse me. That you should really get familiar with, so that not every owl sound is a bigfoot. Not every shadow that you see is a Bigfoot because that's where you're going to get yourself into trouble. You have to go into this with a skeptical mind that the chances of you having any kind of experience or seeing any kind of evidence is probably slim to none. And that's always been my rule of thumb. I've, I've been out thousands and thousands and thousands of hours doing research and, I, and probably 1% of that where I got something out of it. That's just the way it is. But you also have to look at your comfort level. Um, Bigfooting is best done at nighttime. That's the most often where you're going to get hear a wood knock, have a rock throw, hear some sort of vocalization, but not everybody likes to camp outside at nighttime. And so you have to then find your comfort level. Are you more comfortable in a campground that provides bathroom and water for you to use, or are you comfortable uh, doing dispersed camping where you provide all that for yourself? So, or do you only want to go out during the day and look for evidence um, of where you might the foot might be? And for me, the most obvious places to start is places that have pretty good cover, but where there's water. And so, you want to look for other animal footprints, so other. Um, little animals or bigger animals that may also be coming to the same location, we would call that a watering hole, to, to get water on a regular basis. And that's the kind of stuff you will probably want to start with. Um, and that could be anything from uh, a lake shore or a small pond shore or a creek, um, a river, something like that that you want to start. If you could find any kind of sandy banks of a creek or... Um, of a, of a river, that's a good place to look for footprints because sand transfers footprints very, very well, as does wet uh, shorelines transfers foot, uh, footprints very well. But, you know, you have to know yourself as well as know the forest. So pick your level of where you start from that. we got about 30 seconds left with you. Please tell us about your website. Oh, it's just uh, the Alliance of Independent Bigfoot Researchers. Uh, we are a group based to teach science uh, in Bigfooting so that you can be the best Bigfooter you can be. And there are lots of resources on there that you can uh, look at. It's called Protocols for the Researcher. And it just tells you some basic stuff that hopefully will help you do good research. Kathy, thank you so much for being on Spaced Out Radio tonight. What a pleasure it was to get some level-headed theory on what this creature is. Thank you so much for taking the time for our audience. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Kathy Strain on Spaced Out Radio. BigfootResearch.com is her website. We'll be back for hour number three right after this. The SOR Sightlines is a place for you to find answers to your strange experiences. Hi there, this is Mike Schmidt. If you have had an encounter with ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, ETs, or anything else that doesn't make sense, head to spacedoutradio.com and file a Sightlines report. All information you give is 100% confidential, and I will personally help you find the answers you need. SOR Sightlines. Your answers are a click away. 
Greetings and salutations, space travelers from the Chronicles of the Unknown team. What is Chronicles of the Unknown? I keep hearing about this thing. It's a new paranormal reality TV show based right here in beautiful British Columbia, Canada. Follow our team as we uncover claims of activity on the Caribou Gold Rush Trail. You can also follow us here every third Monday where two members of our team will be available to answer your questions. We'll give you some equipment updates and some of our experiences on the road. Right here on Spaced Out Radio. Hi there. I'm Butch Witkowski, lead investigator with Euphoricop. On the final Monday of every month, you can listen to me and host Dave Scott on Spaced Out Radio's Strange Days. We're going to get to the heart of the matter when it comes to what's happening out there. People are seeing and experiencing things from ET contact to Bigfoot, and I want to hear about it. Your experiences are what we investigators need to help solve these unknown mysteries. So tune in at spacedoutradio.com to the final Monday of every month from Butch Wachowski's Strange Days. Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit, and expect a miracle. This is your medium, Joanna, from Spaced Out Weekend, two mediums and a large. I would love it if you would come and join us with host James Tyson every other Sunday on Spaced Out Weekend. Together, we will take your calls and your questions live. Our goal is to provide you with a positive outlook on deep questions that you may have, questions regarding love, relationships, money, or whatever else is on your mind. Come and check us out at spacedoutradio.com. Have you checked out the SOR Spacewire at spacedoutradio.com yet? Every day we post the latest stories regarding the weird, strange, and completely unbelievable. From cryptid and UFO sightings to the conspiracy world, we tackle it all. Hi there, I'm Eric Markham, Space Out Radio's news director for the SOR Spacewire. And if you have a story, I want to hear it. Email me at news at spaceoutradio.com. Patrolling the Pacific Northwest, we are always on the lookout for the strange and unassuming stories that real people are experiencing. Hi, I'm Vincent Zunza from Pacific North Weird. Me and Alexandra Sullivan have teamed to bring to you those odd stories that never seem to make it into the mainstream. Stories so weird that we'll leave you scratching your head wondering, is this real? It's as real as it gets with Pacific North Weird. You can watch our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. Become more intimate and interactive with Spaced Out Radio. Join our Space Travelers Club with your new membership. For $5 a month, we'll provide you with special access to the website, monthly prize draws from books to psychic readings, along with monthly newsletter, private interviews, and more. Sign up today to be part of Spaced Out Radio's experience. Every month on Spaced Out Radio, we look into the deep and dark reports of cryptids roaming around the world with me, Rob Morphy, from Cryptopia.us. I would love it if you would join me and host Dave Scott as we delve into the most arcane stories and reports regarding creatures of the unknown. My job is to hunt down the details and bring the evidence forward to you. These aren't your regular Bigfoot stories I'm talking about either. You can find out more about crypto history at spacedoutradio.com.
looking for a place to advertise at a very reasonable cost? Look no further than Spaced Out Radio. SpacedOutRadio.com has an advertising tab that you can click to check out our daily, weekly, and monthly packages to play on the radio or our website including social media. From commercial spots to banners, we have it all. Check out our competitive pricing today. You hear footsteps in the empty room above you. A rocking chair begins rocking by itself. Don't be afraid of the things that go bump in the night. Reach for Spirit Story Box. The iPhone app the Huffington Post UK called the only ghost hunting app you will ever need. Spirit Story Box. The spirits are telling their stories. Are you listening? Strange creatures lurking in the night, the sounds of wood knocking in the forest, odd happenings right out of a fictional world. These are the reports I love. Hi there, this is author Ronald Murphy, and I would love it if you'd join me and Spaced Out Radio host Dave Scott the second Wednesday of every month on our journey into the unknown land of cryptozoology at spacedoutradio.com. From Mothman to Frogman and everything in between, hey, they don't call me the crypto guru for nothing. Did you know that Spaced Out Radio runs seven days a week? Hi, it's James Tyson from Spaced Out Weekend. Every Saturday and Sunday night, starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, you can join me and my guests for some great chatter about what's going on out in the universe or even in that dark part of the basement you really don't want to go back into. Well, let's find the answers to your experiences together. So come on up to Uncle Jimbo's cabin on the weekend. For more information, look us up at spacedoutradio.com. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and hashtag Spaced Out Radio. And on Facebook, Spaced Out Radio Show. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the final hour of Space Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to have you along for the ride on this show. As we are one day away from the weekend, I'm pretty excited about that as well. You should be too. Tomorrow night, we're going to wrap up the week with our Keith Andrews. Yes, the ET Connection joins us tomorrow night starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time at spacedoutradio.com. We want to welcome in everyone listening in live on our newest affiliate, Renegade Talk Radio out of Las Vegas. We love being live in Sin City. God, I can't wait to go back. I'm a big fan of old Las Vegas. My money apparently likes it, too, which is really cool. And, of course... You can listen in on the United Public Radio Network, live on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 160 countries around the world. Good to have you along for the ride as well. Remember, if you're listening in on Revolution Radio, the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell has set the password for the SOR Space Travelers Club. Janandromorphism. Janandromorphism is your password. So make sure you use it wisely, space travelers, because apparently it means something. What it means, I have no clue. 
but it's your password for the night as Bill sets it each and every night right here on the Mighty SOR. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download this show and others on iTunes. Our website is spacedoutradio.com. If you want to join us for chat and questions on Twitter, all you have to do is type in hashtag Spaced Out Radio. We'll get to it right then and there. And, of course, if you're on our website perusing around, there's a plethora of features there for you including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club. It's only 5 bucks a month. We bring in our resident panel for hour number three, Eric Cooper from Forest Moon Paranormal, Eric Markham, and Everett Themer, whom you heard last night as my guest, talking about paranormal science, paranormal journalism. Men, welcome back. Hey, guys. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. You know what? I really enjoyed that two hours with Kathy Strain. I mean, I'm very big on science and the right way of doing things. And it was just nice, Eric Markham, as our resident scientist of SOR, to hear the way she is investigating. That even though she has her beliefs, the doors to possibility are still there. Did you get that as well? Yes, I did. That's one of the... I heard her interviewed years ago. Uh, I think it was Ian Punnett. And I was taken... You know, I was immediately taken with her approach because, you know, being a scientist myself, I could see where she was going and what she was trying to rule out. And I really had a great deal of respect for her. Me too, you know. And I I really thought a lot of her ideas of what they are, even though some of them I didn't agree with, but that's only because I can only judge on the experiences I have had personally. But I thought that, you know, she was very open to the fact that we don't know what we're dealing with. We don't know what it has, that she has a certain belief that it is an animal that has been here a a long time. And granted, she's allowed to have that belief. But, Markham, do you believe, though, that there's still that scientist in her that doesn't want to believe the other possibilities that, you know, Bigfoot doesn't like the smell of gunpowder. Bigfoot doesn't like cameras. Maybe can have some extrasensory hearing that can pick up the tones of the mechanism that would be a camera. I think she is very empirical, very nuts and bolts, and she bases her beliefs on what she has personally seen. I think she is open-minded enough that if she had the same experiences you had, she would come around to that. You know, it would. She wouldn't throw it away just because it didn't fit her paradigm. I think she's open-minded enough to accept the evidence that her own eyes would supply to her. And Everett, I, I like the fact that. Kathy was very much disappointed with her fellow scientists that the evidence is there. And as Eric Markham has said many times on this show, that there's enough Bigfoot evidence that if it was in human terms in a court of law, you could convict someone of murder or of a crime. And yet she was disappointed that there's so many scientists out there that absolutely refuse to even look into the possibility that this great creature exists. Oh, definitely. It's nice to see somebody cross the line a little bit, but still maintain a scientific point of view. I can understand how 
a portion of the Bigfoot hunting community or Bigfoot believers can disagree with some of her thoughts and her ideas and theories, but it's nice to see somebody out there presenting the scientific aspect while still being open-minded enough to possibly accept that some of their ideas can be changed. The things, Everett, though, that I didn't agree with was the fact that she made it sound like the government is very open in regards to this topic. That they don't, in her area, they know she researches Bigfoot. They know that if there's a something to do with Bigfoot, to contact her. She may have that respect of being that way, but I don't think it answers a lot of questions in regards to other areas where like up here where the conservation officer was told, you just don't talk about that. We don't talk about that. Let's just keep those stories quiet. You know, the job is on the line here. Yeah, but I don't think that the government, I don't think the government isn't, is as involved in Bigfoot hunting as many people want to make it seem. I think that there are conservation officers and forestry workers that have seen anything. I can understand that maybe they don't want to talk about it or their superiors don't want them to talk about it. But I don't think that the government is involved in, you know, just another cover up. I don't think they're involved as much as maybe people want, want to believe they are involved. And I'm going to bring Eric Cooper from from Forest Moon Paranormal in there. You would disagree with that point, would you? No, not not totally, not totally. Because if you take it from uh, okay, like a park ranger or uh, their kind of perspective, okay, they're they're all for tourists. But at the same time, you all of a sudden say you have Bigfoot, you're going to be swarmed with tourists all tracking in your woods. Um. And that's not always a bad thing. But when you have a whole influx of uh, of all these people coming to track through your woods, leave their trash because you know they would, fire risks because you know they would, um, uh, I, I think they want to keep it low on that side, not just because of the government. I think the government's got their hands in some of it, not all of it. I, I think if you come from a park ranger's perspective, they don't want that kind of tourism necessarily. Um also, if you look at it, depending on what kind of woods you're talking about, um, and I'm not a logger advocate per se. Uh, I know loggers got to do their, their job. But then you might have the possibility of having their logging area restricted because now you might have a Bigfoot. Or, you know, and, and so coming from a, an employment perspective on that side and the tourist perspective on the National Park side, that might be another reason they want to hush hush. What did you think, uh, Coop, about when she was saying that there's way too many amateurs doing this in the field of investigation right now? They're not doing it correctly. They're tearing up ground. They're making assumptions that are so impossibly true that they're really distorting the real research that is being done by professionals like her. Honestly, I missed the show. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it again, because I had a case that popped up right as your show came on, and I have a second case that I'm juggling right now. But um, on on that attitude, um, 
definitely. I mean, uh, just enforcement paranormal always kicked a couple uh, uh, Bigfooters out um, because, you know, Tyler Allen Standingberry is my Bigfoot specialist in my group. And he looks at them like with a fine tooth comb as well. And him being Native American, not scientists, no, but him being Native American and having his own constant Bigfoot uh, interaction. I mean, he, he, he's down right now because he had surgery, as you know, from Paracon. But once he's better, he'll be up there interacting with him again. He takes his boy. He takes his dog. I mean, uh, we're, we're, we're talking coming from a Native American perspective as well as his own personal encounters that he's had for, what, five to ten years now. Um, but, yeah, there's too many, oh, my God, look, let's watch mountain hunters and then go up and uh, see if we can find one. Um, and, and then again, you've got them leaving the trash everywhere. You've got them destroying the woods. You've got them terrorizing whatever community they're in. And yeah, I, I would agree just looking on some of the groups that I see that, yeah, they're, they're, they are amateur. They, they, they don't care about getting a, a all they're about is fame and glory and getting their 15 minutes of fame because they, they saw a Bigfoot or what they thought was a Bigfoot. Eric Markham, I bring you in here. What did you think of Kathy's perspective of the amateur researchers who are trying to do their research on Sasquatch? I think she was bang on, and I sort of, I agree. There's too many, there's a difference between being an amateur and being a, I don't know the right word, trying to come up with a a non-derogatory way to put this. There are amateurs who go at it in a respectful manner. And then there's the redneck weekend warrior out there with their guns. And And it's like, let's have a a squatch party and use it as an excuse to get, you know, get inebriated and stagger through the woods. And I think there's too much of the, the redneck version of it out there. Everett, what did you think when Kathy stated that too many people have too many theories on what this is and that we got to simplify the research down to try and figure out what this creature truly is? I completely agree. We have so many different opinions of what it is that we can't really narrow it down. We we have to pick a path to follow and eliminate that path to really move forward. If we're just all running around, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. We're not following any any direct path. We're not really finding anything to test or to to go about. You know, move the field forward. We're just running around there looking for something that we really don't know. And that makes sense. That totally makes sense, you know, in regards to what we are looking for. However, I was very, very surprised that she was that she wasn't as lack of a better term up to date on the different species. She said there wasn't enough information to say, okay, this group in this area seems to be more docile, whereas this group over here seems to be more aggressive. Yet there seems to be plenty of research dictating that that is the case, Eric Markham. 
So I'm curious, do you think that that's just keeping an objective open mind because she is a scientist and she wants proof of that? Or do you think that's her own opinion? I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think her experience, I think in a case with somebody like Kathy, having gone through what it takes to get a master's in anthropology, you have a certain mindset beat into you in graduate school. And I think what what she does is let the empiricism of what she sees and what data she collects form her opinion. And I'm sure she's got ideas of her own, but she tries, she more than likely puts them within the framework of her education. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you know, that's just the way we're taught. I do think if she ever had, a, if, if she had the kind of experience, if she was out with you and saw the pixelation or saw some of the more, let's just say, far out things with Bigfoot, she would come or she would, she would at least try and figure out what had happened. She would not, dis- I don't think she would dismiss it out of hand. I think it would be a matter of, Holy crap, I didn't know they could do that. Let's see what this is all about. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I think that's a fair statement. I just love the fact that she's out there doing the work. She's out there getting dirty. She's out there, you know, hammering home information and very open-minded. And I think it's so much different than what we see from a lot of these weekend warriors, Coop, who are out there, you know, with using their their scientific experiments to block their own opinion. Is that refreshing to hear when you actually have a scientist doing that? Everett, would you like to take that question? Uh, um, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, it's it's nice to see somebody out there with the degrees, with the knowledge, going out there. Uh, one thing that you know some of these people are probably missing is things like when you had mentioned the footprints, footprint cast from from uh, the woman in Arizona. Yes, and she suggested she suggested that they have those tested for for prints or DNA. Well, that's something that any Bigfoot researcher should have thought of immediately. And here's a scientist out there doing the work and suggesting something like that. But don't we forget the simple questions? Sometimes. But that's why people working together, a variety of fields, different backgrounds, that's why that works the best. Mario has a comment here, Coop, I'd like to get, or Eric Markham, I'd like to get your opinion on. He says, I think Kathy, like a lot of paid government employees, are only allowed to disseminate a certain amount of info to the public. What's your opinion on that? I don't see that with, uh, I don't think that she would compromise her scientific integrity like that. Just my, just my feeling from, you know, having contacted her for the show and 
you know, my rather limited amount of exposure to her personally, I don't think that's her, that she, I don't think the government's going to tell her what to do. I really don't. She wouldn't be going public like she is. They wouldn't allow her to have a Bigfoot research site. You know, I don't know. I, I'm going to bite my tongue on this one because I just am. You know. Oh. Anyhow, moving on. Would you chase down a Bigfoot Everett like she did? You know, I can't answer that because I've never seen one. I would love to see one. I don't know what my reaction would be when I saw one, though. Come on. You'd go Usain Bolt trying to track one down. You know, if I saw it in my woods where I live, I would probably chase it down. If I was in an unfamiliar area, I probably would crap my pants and not chase it down. I got a question from Gail here. And she is asking you, the panel, can any of you provide more information on the pictographs that were mentioned. I think Eric Markham, that was your question. Uh, yeah, I've. It's in her book. Uh, I posted the link to it. I've lost it since then. But she was actually given permission to go to this uh, this area where I can't I can't remember the details that well. But she was actually given permission to go in and photograph these petroglyphs that uh, depicted what the what that that particular nation called uh, hairy man and they already had a very rich mythology within their own you know within their own tribe about how hairy man was an integral part of the beginning of mankind that the coyote entity wanted man to walk on all fours but their their cosmology has that you know hairy man said no they're they're more they're my brothers they need to walk on two feet and there was actually some pictographs some uh i can't remember if they were actually petroglyphs that were pounded into the ground or into the rock or if they were painted but uh they actually show this like she said there's there's actually this depiction of this huge you know, eight foot tall, hairy man, and that's what the the elders said. This is, you know, this is our Sasquatch story. Hey, that can be you and me. <laughs> All three of you, if you, look, if you took facial pictures right around now, you know. But we're, we're you know, but I, but I think it depends on where you're at. I mean, Everett, if you're in the south. And you hear the stories about Bigfoot being in the South more aggressive and coming after you. Whereas you come into my backyard, my backyard, they're docile. If anything, they stay hidden. And so would I track one down? Only if you let me. Because I, I, I couldn't see a Bigfoot coming after me. Yeah, I don't know. I think I would be so shocked that I was seeing one that... I, I don't know what my reaction would be. My area doesn't have a huge, you know, database of Bigfoot sightings. So 
I, I don't always expect to see one. I don't think I will see one, so I don't know how I would react. You just wait until you hear a knock. <laughs> I'm waiting. When you, when, you, when you hear that tree knock, oh, my God, it's the most awe-inspiring sound. It really is. And then you'll crap your pants when you hear the roar. <laughs> yeah, right. See, the roar oh, would impress. The roar I, would impress me more because I, I, I've been out in our woods in the middle of the night and branches fall, and it, it can be a very loud experience to be in the woods in the middle of the night. So a, a tree knock in the distance isn't going to really impress me. Now a roar that would. Well, you know. It's weird because the tree knock I heard last year, and we're talking 50, not 16, um, it wasn't that far from me. I should have been able to see it. And, and like Dave says, uh, with the pixelation, I didn't see any pixelation or anything. I just didn't see anything. But that's the tree it came from. It was loud. It wasn't like a woodpecker. Cause I've been asked before, are you sure it wasn't a woodpecker? And yeah, I'm positive it wasn't. Well, I've heard woodpeckers. I've got them here too. It was more like a log knocking on a tree. That's exactly what it sounded like. And it was within perfect range. It was more, it wasn't more than 50 feet from me. And I should have seen it. And me and my two buddies that were with me, we walked over there. No footprints, no nothing. So it was all like a pine needle or, you know, a, yeah, like pine needle. Nothing there. And we walked back to the, the trail, the trailhead that we were at and it did it again. Like, <laughs> hey, you didn't see me. I'm still here though. You know, it, it, it was cool. It, well, it didn't make me scared. It didn't scare me. It didn't, it, nothing. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because one of the stories Kathy had stated on earlier on in, in hour number two was that when she had her Bigfoot experience, her husband, or she had originally seen movement in a certain area. So her husband went over there and saw a couple of logs lying down and was going to walk on those logs. But when he went back to check that area where it had come from, there was a log missing. Mm -hmm. And if he would have stepped up there, he would have stepped right on that Sasquatch. You know, I mean, they, I mean, they're the reigning hide-and-seek champions for a reason here, people. Exactly. You know? Yeah, it seems like there's many cases where people have been just, you know, sitting on a hillside looking out over... You know, looking out over the scenery and just enjoying it, and the rock or the the stump that was in front of them got up and walked away. So that there there seems to be a innate ability for this creature to camouflage itself, and like all other animals, just be still like the dead of the night. Well, yeah, and I think it's a matter of, the in this case, the observer wasn't tramping around, wasn't actually looking for that kind of encounter. They were just walking, saw, uh, saw something they wanted to absorb and enjoy, sat down. They were still, and without any movement in the area or any sound in the area, the Sasquatch thought it was, you know, all clear, got up and walked away. Much to the surprise of the person that was observing it at the time. Totally understand. Totally understand with that. What do you think, though, about 
it being a migratory animal, Coop? I, I've heard that. I've heard that from Tyler, as a matter of fact. Uh, if, if, during the wintertime, for example, just go higher. They actually do migrate higher in the mountain. During the summertime, that's when they come down here. So migratory, yes. Now, before he had a surgery, he was actually going to uh, do an experiment and see if they actually migrated with the coyotes or migrated with the uh, the elk or see what other animals follow them, but he never got that far. But that's one of his other uh, experiments, actually. Now you're saying the word experiment. Now that's kind of one of his uh, one of his observations he wants to see is, do they follow the other animals or the other animals follow Bigfoot hmm. when they migrate? Is Bigfoot indeed the leader of the animals, or do the does he follow them? It's kind of the, the question. That is a big, big decision there. What do you think, mm-hmm. Eric Markham? I gotta wonder. It all, okay. I've heard that's the second time I've heard that they they migrate higher into the mountains in the winter. Which seems counterintuitive. It's, you know, it would be colder the higher you went. So I'd be very interested to know: are there like a winter dwelling place? Uh, maybe they they go higher because more caves, more caves, and being that cold, it's going to be the rare human that's going to be looking for them, or. Maybe they go into a form of torpor, like a lot of mammals do in the winter, and they have places up there that where they would be vulnerable. So they go there higher up to get out of reach of prying eyes and for a certain amount of security. Well, and that's why I wondered if they hibernate or not. And that came off of Gail's question earlier on from the SOR Space Travelers Club, whether or not they are a creature that hibernates or at least slows down during the winter. I would think like uh, ground squirrels will, you know, they'll burrow in and they'll go into, it's an almost suspended animation. Depending on the temperature, they just go into this, it's called torpor and, you know, minimal life signs. In fact, you could probably pick up a, you could take it, find a ground squirrel and I've seen it done, uh, had a professor studied this in college. When they're in torpor, you can reach down, pick one up, look at it, lay it back down, and it'll barely even react. Because they're just I know, shut down. I have another theory, though, because I know not all of them migrate. So what I'm wondering, and what I'll have Tyler look at when he does his uh, study this summer, and later on when he feels better and gets up more, is uh is it the families that migrate? Because there are families, or is it? I don't know. Because uh, okay, at Lake Tai, where we had the Paracon, they've had Bigfoot sightings. They've they've had the the footprints in the snow. That tells you right there not all of them migrate. That's still low enough. They're they're not going higher. So. I wonder if it's just the family units that migrate, and that's just to get, like Markham said, out of prying eyes. Could it also be just uh, maybe we're look, you know, maybe we're casting 
too broad a net over the the species itself. I mean, we have the Patterson-Gimlin film, which I think all of us agree that's a legit film of what we've come to know as Bigfoot. But then you look at how Harvey Pratt and some of his eyewitnesses have described the animal, and it has a more human face. So there could be, you know, subspecies within the genre. There's the the Patterson Bigfoot style, and then that's the, you know very very apish had the completely hair covered face, but then in the area of the Hoopa tribe, their experiences and their descriptions of the creature much more much more human, much more uh, I don't I anthrop anthropomorphized. Uh, it seems like the there's no hair not you know they're not completely hair covered faces and they look more like what we would think of as like a caveman type of face where there's actually naked skin and the features are exposed so maybe one type maybe the the really hairy ones go high in the mountains and the more human looking ones don't i mean there's so many questions as far as this unknown species goes, but I think we're we might just be generalizing a little too much when we say they migrate or they don't. I think if well, they I have, think we yeah, I think we kind of need to determine what <clears throat> excuse me what migrating is. Um, you know, in, <clears throat> in Washington, there it's easy to go up and down the mountains and get in and out of a better environment. But when you have these sightings in Oklahoma or the Plains where there really isn't any other environment, you can walk for hundreds of miles and it's essentially the same environment, what benefit does it to them to migrate? Unless they're following a food source, I can't really think of one. Uh, They think in... Uh, Minnesota, in the very remote regions of Minnesota, that they follow the bear as, you know, looking as, as the berries ripen and certain food sources become available. They think they, they, I, I don't even know if migrate, seems to me there's a better term than migration, but it, it, they follow the food source. And that would make sense, depending on the river run, okay, where fish are cohabitating or getting ready for spawning or anything like that. You know, I think there's a, there's a lot of of different areas and where they can go. You know what I'm saying? Right. And, you know, if, and maybe they do have a like a form of hibernation or they go into an estivation at, during the coldest part of the month. And they wake up in the spring, cranky and hungry, <laughs> and that might give us a that might give us a, a a key into how they're perceived in some cultures as being peaceful, kind of nomadic, peaceful nomadic woods people, and on others they're foul tempered and brutish. I know if I wake up cold and hungry, I'm going to be brutish. You know, let's let's just. And that might be where we get the disparity in the descriptions. 
Coop, what's your thoughts on that? His phone hang up on us again. I think so. I think I see Everett and Yeah, you. it did. It did hang up on us again. You know, we're going to hear the ringtone here. Going to hear the ringtone. Let's go. Your phone really doesn't like us tonight. No, that's my damn beer. It keeps getting caught now. Yeah. <laughs> it's that damn beard. It's that damn, it is. damn beard. Blame it on the chin whiskers. Well, I think we had a very entertaining discussion in regards to Bigfoot tonight. And I got to tell you, I, I want to get some I want to get some audience thoughts on this. And I know there's still people in the chat rooms because I'm watching you, and I know they're on Twitter as well. Thinking about making a couple of changes to the SOR flagship. And I want everybody out there who is listening to hit me up on social media privately or just make a comment on my Facebook page. I'm thinking about adding a... A, I, I don't want to call it a rant, but a rant at the back end of the show. So, for instance, we'd be like 10 minutes away from the rant if I was doing it right now. But at the beginning of the show, we're doing a, a quick journalism update on the couple stories of the day. Just to kind of make it that it's so not, I don't know. I don't want to say it's monotonous doing the guest, but just to add a little bit of color, a little bit of flavor. You know, sometimes you got to add a little bit of garlic to spice things up a little bit. What do you think, Everett? Should we do that? I think you should. I've, you and I have had some conversations where you've just kind of gone off on a spin, and it's fun to listen to, it's entertaining, and you have some really good thoughts. So, yeah, I think you should spend a few minutes at the end of the show doing a little rant. Mm hmm. Gives me a chance to bitch and complain. No. What do you think? We'll call it, we'll call it the Tabasco at the end. Huh. You got garlic in the beginning and the Tabasco at the end. There you go. Oh, I don't know about that, my friend. I am, I'm way hotter <laughs> than Tabasco. Way hotter than ghost Tabasco. Pepper. Okay. Well, there's a, a little ghost pepper at the end then. I would appreciate that. There you go. I, I, I guess I, I just, you know, when you enter that third hour of doing the show, not that it's a pain in the butt to do three hours, but you kind of start thinking when it hits that bottom of that third hour, okay, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet? Because I got a big list right in front of me of everything we've talked about. And if I've hit everything on that list, what can I go back to so it doesn't sound so repetitive? But if I, say, trimmed 10 minutes off the front and then, say, five or six minutes off the back and added a little bit of different features on there, I think that would be just a little bit interesting. And yes, John John Connor, I really like the scorpion peppers. I really do like the hot scorpion peppers. The hottest hot sauce I have in my fridge right now is 1.2 million Scoville units. That's hot. Nice. Yeah. 
Considering Frank's Red Hot Sauce is 40,000 Scoville units. Frank's is? Frank's is 40,000 Scoville units, yes. Oh, wow. Yes. And, huh. well, it depends on the bottle and everything. But this one that I right. like to use is called the Scorpion. Is 1.2 million. It's hot. It, it, you have a little bit too much, and I can tell you this. Ouch. I could, yeah. You could pay for days if you don't use wisely. <laughs> yeah, you don't mm-hmm. use that on days you're doing the show, do you? Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I, I've had to cut out. I've had to cut out, guys. Um, I suffer from, and if anybody else out there has it, you'll know what I'm talking about. I suffer from diverticulitis, which which is a colon problem uh, when trying to digest very uh, hard or very heavy type foods. Beef, especially ground beef, is is one of them. In the past couple of days, my diverticulitis has been kind of flaring up. And so in order for me to do this... I have to go a little bit of the V word. I know. I am biting my tongue. Not only do I have to do the V word right now, but Team Canada loses tonight to Team USA, and I realize you three Yankees are happy with that, but I am not. Right? I don't... I'm not saying vegan. I will not go vegan. (laughs) Okay. I was thinking the other one, vegetarian. I got to go vegetarian for a bit to kind of calm my stomach down because it is, it is a little painful right now. Little Mm -hmm. painful. Oh, I I had a half a bag of ghost pepper chips and uh, yeah, I was dying for a month, literally. So yeah, we're talking pain. Joe, I, I I can feel you for a minute. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be honest with you. The minute you mentioned that, my mouth started watering because I love that hot stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to try that one chip challenge. Have you seen that? Which one's that? No. One chip, one potato chip comes in a box. And you open up the box and you eat the potato chip. And apparently it is just... Hotter than hell. And you know what? If you go on YouTube and you type in, no, Robert White, I am not giving up bacon in my vegetarianism. Uh-huh. I am not giving up bacon. That is a staple and a God-given right on this show. And no, I'm not eating quiche or quinoa. I will not do quinoa. Yes, I know the proper pronunciation. I know Mrs. Space Out Radio up above me. If she's still awake, she's probably laughing and giggling right now. I will not eat quinoa. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. Well, hot sauce on. No, no, there is no point. There is no point. Anyways. You know, I'm sure. Yeah, and there's Joe. USA. 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 Yeah, thanks, Joe. Appreciate your time. <laughs> Rub it in. You're out of the club, Joe. (laughs) So tonight I had a salad for dinner with some wraps ripped up with some freshly made hummus that Mrs. S.O.R. made tonight for dinner. And, yeah, 
I'm doing okay, Nate, right now. Doing okay, but I got to give up the hot sauce for a little bit. I just couldn't do that. I know. I learned the hard way. There's a place up in D, around D.C. called Cluck U Chicken. And they have the ones, I think they were called 911. Hmm. I can't remember the name, but you actually have to sign a waiver to buy them. And I thought, oh, this is cute. And, you know, I ordered, yeah, well. I ordered, I forgot how many, like eight boneless breasts, you know, in their hottest thing. And I saw, I got home. Oh my God! I can see <laughs> they weren't exaggerating. Those things made my ears ring. They were so hot. I ate them because I'd spent twenty bucks on them. I wasn't going to throw them away, but I oh, paid. No. God, give never the dog. again, <laughs> huh? So oh, give me the dog. No, I actually tried to give. The, I tried to, I, I offered one over, to, uh, BB actually got up and, and started sniffing, and I thought, <laughs> he, got, he got one good sniff and took off running. <laughs> it was Rear like he got popped in the yeah. nose. I don't think I'll hear the dog either. Oh. <laughs> Speaking of that one chip, though, if you go to YouTube, the one chip challenge, Bumblefoot and Mrs. Bumblefoot actually do the one chip challenge on video. And they are burning for like 15, 20 minutes. And then Bumblefoot accidentally rubs the paste or whatever that is on the chip. He accidentally gets some in his eye. Oh, God. Oh. Yeah. So if if you go on YouTube, the one chip challenge, Bumblefoot, yeah, it's there. It's actually kind of funny. You know, I don't know how we got on this topic. From, going from you know, the changes I will, that we're uh, make on the show, I'll buy the chips if you and Mrs. Sor will do the same oh. thing. Oh, she won't eat it. I'll do it. Uh. I have no problem doing it. I will sacrifice my diverticulitis pain for that one chip challenge. Sounds like something we need to do at the Sor convention. Yeah, hmm. for YouTube. I don't know. Just don't, just don't put it in your eye. No, no, I've done that. I've actually, if you've, <laughs> if you've ever traveled through Pennsylvania, you'll know there is a really awesome hot wings burger joint called Quaker Steak and Lube. And and I did the hot wings challenge at one of those, and I actually got my name on the wall. I'm pretty happy about that. Pretty happy. My I did six of them. And I was with my friend Andrew. I am like shaking and sweating. These damn things are so hot on these hot wings. I am like literally ripping the chicken off the hot wing, taking it on my fork with the hot chicken and the spice on there, shoving it in my glass of milk before I am downing it in, in my mouth. And my buddy Andrew there... I did six, and I struggled to six. But I had to do it, because the previous year when I was there, I only accomplished one. Okay? But I did six. Barely. And my buddy Andrew there, he polished off like ten or twelve of them. Didn't even break a sweat. I was dying. 
I, this was the worst thing I've ever put in my mouth. I, and I think that was at like half a million Scoville units. You know, I think I'm better trained now. You know, I, I've done some practice since then. And this is a place in Pennsylvania? <laughs> yeah, Pen, uh, Quaker's, Quaker Steak, not State, Steak and Lube. Okay, I get the Quaker and I get the steak. I've, I have to ask, what do they serve that has anything to do with lube? Well, I can, I can tell you this. I can tell you this, man. You eat the hot wings, your milk will be your lube. It's hot. Mm-hmm. John is saying, Dave, you are so hyper-competitive. Is that a typical Canadian trait? Well, we don't like to lose like we did tonight at the World Juniors to Team USA in a shootout, which, damn it, should be banned from hockey. There is no way a gold medal game should be decided by a shootout. And if you're a hockey fan, you'll agree with me. You'll agree with me on that. I know the Australians over there, they don't know what the hell a, a, a puck and ice is at their 43 degrees at this point right now. You know, but no way. I'm still angry about that. Uh, maybe next year I'll agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, it's terrible. Terrible. I'm still hurting over that. That, that one is painful. Uh, Joe Allgaier wants a chip. Huh. I saw that. Mm-hmm. We'll yeah, we're gonna have to get some chips. Oh, and he's still <laughs> and Joe is still chirping me for the Team USA win today. Joe, I hope you get a haircut. <laughs> no, no, we'll send him a potato. We'll send him a potato. He can chop it up and he can roast it over a fire with his pointy stick. That would work. That would send him a box of. Sarcoptic mange. <laughs> Absolutely. Dave, you should never wish upon anybody or their hair any ill. This is true. I do apologize for that. As a big fan of a good length of hair, a good mustache, beard, goatee, you know, I, I, I apologize to Joe's hair for that. You're right. That was rude. That was just the emotion in me, man. It was the emotion. Of that loss. It hurts. It hurts. Gail, where is my tissue? Where is my tissue? Captain Shirk, I need my tissue. We only got about uh, five and a half minutes left. But yes, anyways, getting back to the original conversation. In the near future, there's there's a good chance that we are going to be making a couple of additions. You know, I I guess I shouldn't use the word change because being politically correct, change usually isn't bad uh, or can be bad. We're not changing the format of the show. It's still going to be three hours. We're not changing the the length that the guest comes on. What we're doing is we're adding a couple features that we're going to squeeze in between so that way we have the ability to... You know, just add another couple dimensions to this show. And Everett, I'll say it, when we get this going here in the next, probably beginning of February, somewhere around there, um, 
you're going to be joining me for the first 10 minutes of the show just to kind of go over some news stories from the day, whether they're in the paranormal, whether they're in the mainstream. We're just going to find some interesting stories to kind of hash and debate for about 10, 15 minutes. Then we're going to go bring our guest in, get to the topic of the night, and we're going to run with that until there's about five, six minutes. And then what we're going to do is we're going to do a little bit of a commentary at the end of the show. You know, and it's not going to be negative. We're not going to try and nail it or end it on a on a negative connotation or anything like that. But it's just to kind of get people to think and stir up some some talking on social media. And you know, I don't know yet whether we're going to put it on the website. We may put it on the website, but we already have the blogs going on there. Um, but what we're going to do is we want to get you the audience more involved you're already very involved in the show which is absolutely awesome you know absolutely awesome how everybody kind of takes part in the show but what we want to do is we want to bring that to social media let's get more people talking on social media so that way when i give the the commentary at the end of the show it gives you something to think about in preparation so that way and I know most of you, because most of you who I see in the chat rooms at least, are absolutely, you know, very active with this show. And, <clears throat> and excuse me, maybe I should burp. I don't know. But that's a, a, a play on show a couple nights ago. But... Okay. um the okay. whole po- the whole point of that is to keep that continuity going so that way we have something to talk about because in the end the way this audience is going to grow is the more we can get you involved the more people are going to see you involved and when they see you involved they're going to become curious when they become curious that's when we have the opportunity to now get them as listeners so you know we want your participation with this and that's kind of the reason that we're going to be just trying it out. And hey, if it doesn't work, we can always pull it. We could pull it from the show. That's just the way it is. You know? But I think it'll just add some fun. What's that, Coop? I say that's how we do things in store. They don't work, you just change them. Mm -hmm. Not a big deal. Everybody's comparing temperatures right now. From where they are, it's minus eleven degrees Celsius where I am right now, and it's so cold here that the truck's not running. The truck gave up. It said, "No, it's too cold. I'm not running no more." <laughs> so, yeah. Well, apparently, around the fifteenth, if you read the almanac, we are scheduled for minus forty degrees Celsius, which also happens to be minus forty degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. That's on the 15th. I'm hoping it doesn't get that cold. I've never been in that cold. The cold yeah, you know, the problem to... I have with almanacs, though, is that uh, <laughs> my weatherman can't predict five days ahead. So something predicting almost a year ahead, I, I just I can't, uh, I can't believe it. Well, we'll You're see when he gets here. Us, you know, uh, Jolene calls me a little bit of a weather wimp because she grew up in the Yukon. The coldest day she's ever experienced was minus 57 degrees Celsius. That's uh-huh. cold. That's cold. Like, you don't even uh-huh. go outside. Like, a couple weeks ago, when it was like minus 31 here Celsius, that, my friends, 
Like, you step outside, and within 30 seconds, your hair hurts. Your face hurts. Okay? Your fingers are... Are, are are painful. Even if you have gloves on, your fingers are sore. It's terrible. That's cool. Bearded icicles. Your nostrils, like my friend. That. My friend, honestly, <laughs> I've been blown away by this this year. You know, you go outside when it's like minus 22 or minus 30 out, and your nostrils, your the hair in your nostrils starts to freeze because you're breathing it in, right? You're breathing mm-hmm. it in. Who does that? Who has nostrils freezing? Apparently I do. <laughs> Preacher. I, I grew up. Preacher, you can respect that. Yeah, I grew up in, in Michigan where back in the old days when it would actually get cold in the winter. Yeah. yeah. Snow for a week at a time. Mm-hmm. I hear you. I hear you. My friends, I want to say thank you. That was a quick hour. It was. I got to go. It was. I would go overtime. <laughs> I would totally go overtime, but I got to get up in the morning. I got that ugly daytime meeting. Uh, we like to call it the I'm the best, you suck meeting. <laughs> because well, one, one day this would be your, this be your full time job. I'm looking forward to that. You know, I uh-huh. was looking. I was looking around my old town today because I went and got a haircut today. I was looking around uh, the town today, and I'm like, damn it, that would be a nice storefront for Spaced Out Radio. That would be cool. The barbershop one or the other? No, a different one. I, just, <laughs> I, I, still want, I still want barbershop chairs in there. Yes. Barbershop chairs are absolutely awesome. When this is your full-time job, you're going to grow a mullet, right? I am never <laughs> cutting my hair or shaving my beard again. Hey, guys, you hold on. If you're listening in on the Space Out Radio side, you are listening to Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thaw, formerly of Guns N' Roses, currently of Art of Anarchy. But the most important part is Bumblefoot is the official music of Space Out Radio. He brings us in, takes us home every single night on this show. Go to our website, spaceoutradio.com. Click on the Bumblefoot banner to listen to more of his great tunes and his albums. Tomorrow night on the show, our Keith Andrews, or as Mario likes to call him, Keith Edwards, either one of them, they'll both show up tomorrow night, and they will be there. Trip, I saw the comment, you let the gnomes go on Team Canada, which caused the loss, losing to Team USA at the World Juniors. It's your fault. Thank you for putting me in a miserable mood. You owe me a drink. Remember, follow us on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. You can find this episode on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download us on iTunes. And, of course, our website is spacedoutradio.com. We'll talk to you in exactly 21 hours from now. Look forward to it. I hope you do as well. See you then.